My name is Dustin Kelly, but everybody calls me DJ. I'm prior army, serving as both a Ford observer and a military police officer. I spent the last 14 and a half years as a police officer and detective in a large metropolitan police department. Two things that I've learned throughout my career. One, everybody has a story to tell. And two, the best stories are true. This is the DTD Podcast. In three, two, one, and we're live. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the DTD Podcast. This week in the studio, a Master Sergeant in the U.S. Army who started his career in the Navy as a parachute rigger with dreams of becoming a Navy SEAL. But that goal was cut short by a mysterious illness. In his 20s, when he should have been living the best life that he could, his body was breaking down at an exponential rate that was unexplained by medical science which was the cause of him giving up, at least temporarily, his childhood dream of becoming a commando when he left the Navy abruptly. Fast forward to a four-year chase to restart the dream of serving his country, many rejections, and an email that was given to him out of spite. This guest resumed the goal of being a special operator. Now over 20 years, seven deployments, and having served as a special warfare's weapons sergeant, intelligence sergeant, and operations sergeant, my guest has become one of the most experienced veteran advocates, educators, and Green Berets that is still serving his country. He is a human performance and wellness senior leader, the founder of the Meta Transition Program, and the founding director of the SOF Health Initiatives Program. Please welcome a guest that has been in the works for a long time, Jeff Dardia. What's going on, my friend? Hey, what's happening, brother? How are you doing? I am doing fantastic. I'm so glad you're here. Someone had told me that they wanted me to ask you a specific question. So I said, yeah, no problem. We'll start off it with that. And um, let's see, it comes from a Charles P. And uh, he says to ask him, who is the best looking small unit tactings cadre? <laughs> that must be Chuck P. Ritter. Oh, I don't know. Oh, but yeah. <laughs> So that's who put us together. They wanted to talk to you and uh, ask you that. I have some serious questions for you, but I want to go all the way back. Now, being a commando, being in special forces and being a special operator was kind of your idea your whole life growing up. So let's go all the way back to the beginning and kind of talk about that. Um, it was always easy. I mean, we grew up in the days of the Cold War, so uh, it was Rambo, Chuck Norris, right? Braddock and all those things. But always knew want to help people. That was priority, right? Commando just seemed to be the most effective and efficient way to be able to help more people in a direct way. So, I mean, that's we grew up doing um, being outdoors. I grew up in Maine. Uh, I grew up in the water, surfing, scuba diving, doing everything. So it's a natural fit to, you know, our patch said see her and land on it in Special Forces. The three lightning bolts, I did all three of those things. So that's always where I wanted to be. I grew up in a military family. All my uncles served all the way back into World War II. And uh, it was the thing that kept me out of trouble growing up because I, I was focused on that. So um, that was my mission and purpose and my focus growing up. Well, I want to ask, though, a special operator, because that's what you focused on. That's what you said, a commando. Now, of course, like you said, we grew up in the 80s and, and we had all that stuff. But what was it about 
specifically, I know helping people, but what was it specifically about being a commando that was so alluring to you? The people, the, the caliber of people that are in those organizations, that's, that's the top of the top, right? Being the best. Um, my, my dad always told me, don't half-ass anything. If you're going to go for it, go big and uh, do the best you can, right? The only thing, the only limitations uh, we, we acknowledge are the ones we set, right? Like on ourselves. So uh, go for the gold. I want to ask, though, as you come into the military, um, I, I thought something interesting. You graduated at, I think, 18. Uh, you knew what you wanted to do with your life, but you took a year off. You went like surfing, skydiving, skiing, all those kind of things. Yeah. The first question to that would be, do you think you looked at going into the military and going into special operations different than most people do. Do you think you took it? I don't want to say a little more seriously, but maybe understood the gravity of what you were getting ready to do. Yeah. Um, obviously that wasn't just a, to be a commando is not just a title. Like the job they ask you to do is inherently dangerous and just in training without combat, you know, we, we couldn't have foreshadowed what was going to about to happen with nine 11, but the gravity of that situation really hit home after I got out of the Navy waiting to go in the army, when that happened, you, I knew exactly what I was getting into. So that was like, I don't know. I just had the insight of, Hey, go do all the things you want to do because you're about to commit 110% to something else. So just get it out of your system, get it out of the way and know I'm going to sacrifice the best years of my life, you know, in college party and doing all those things to go join the military and get smashed. So that, that was like one of the things that, I'm going to go hang out with my buddies I grew up with, go out snowboarding, skiing, surfing, and do all those things and, you know, look back and say, hey, no regrets. Let's go do this thing. It's interesting that you bring up, you know, going to college, that party lifestyle and all that kind of stuff. When you're doing all this with your friends and you're you're kind of traveling the world, are you telling them, like, are, are you being, I guess, self-reflective? I hate to say it in a philosophical way, but are you... Are you kind of self-reflecting the whole time you're doing it, really making sure that's what you want to do? What is it that's going through your mind? Because I want to understand your mental state before, during, and then kind of coming up to the after of your career. Yeah, I, I don't know where all this insight came from, but as I was growing up, I don't know. It's like I had my 5, 10, 15 year plan of all the things I was going to do and you know, make sure of what I didn't get uh, like get in trouble when I was at a young age, do stupid things, get drug convictions or anything that would prevent me from going in these programs. But, you know, looking back at it, my friends knew what I was doing too. And, and they never pressured me to do anything They're like, Hey, we know where you're going. It's even in my high school yearbook, you know, future plans, Navy. And it, it was just hundred percent laser focus on that. I prepared for it. Like, you know, years in high school training before I even joined the Navy. And I went in delayed entry at 17 years old. And from 17 to 19, that's all I did was, you know, work out, run, swim, and do everything I could to prepare for just getting into basic training, let alone buds. When you were doing that, did it take away from your high school life and stuff too? I mean, were you so laser focused that you, we, we know at the end of it, you kind of looked around, but were you so laser focused that it was like school training and kind of that was it? Or did you enjoy yeah. that part of your youth? I still had fun. But I just didn't do some of the things that probably would have disqualified me if I had to take a poly. <laughs> so, so, but I still, I still made the full uh, amount of my high school years. You can ask any of my friends that and family. 
Well, so when you talk about training and you say that how much you train, this is the most interesting part of your story to me. You seem like almost like a specimen that was made to work out, to do physical rigors yet all throughout your career. And we're going to zero in on each of them throughout your career, but it almost seemed like your body broke down for no reason. Um, what do you think it was that you never really saw it coming? Like, I think most people, if they train, they would see like, hey, if I do this, I'm going to get hurt. If I do this, you know, maybe I got a bad shoulder, things like that. That doesn't seem like that ever even affected you until it all hit you like a rainstorm. Um, one, you think you're indestructible, right? And you think, hey, more is better. Uh, I didn't know what recovery was. I didn't know about the effects of certain medications or things in the environment. I had no idea about chronic stress, traumatic stress sleep deprivation. I had zero clue about any of that stuff going into this. Probably a good idea. I didn't either <laughs> because you just, you did what you did every day. You got up one foot in front of the other one evolution at a time and you just gutted it out. But looking, you know, back hindsight now, imagine trying to do that at 35 years old, going through the Q course or something else. You have to do the maintenance. You have to do the recovery and you're going to be slowed down. But at 20 years old, you think you're bulletproof and it's like if even if i had that information back then i would be like yeah right bud like i've got this you know old fart you know shut up stay in your lane but you know that's just how it was and it's that's the mentality i had going through that but it wasn't until after hell week like when you're going through those training pipelines you're always self-assessing anyway because it's it's like i don't know how to explain it. it's kind of like the imposter syndrome you feel like you don't belong there like how the hell am i still here and you don't realize how well you're actually doing. And so going through that program, you're always just looking around you and seeing all those people to your left and right that were like super studs. You're like, how the hell am I still here? You know, the short little dude from Maine, the young kid. And it, it was just humbling being in the presence of those people. It was incredible. But at the same time, I was doing a lot better than I thought I was doing. And obviously I made it through phase three of my first go around. So that's pretty good achievement I, I guess you would say looking back at it in hindsight well you completed 22 of 25 weeks of uh buds training yeah. i, I want to go back a little further though when you come into the navy and and you start this you say that you know you're looking around you're always kind of self-assessing thinking that you're not belonging where you're at yeah but i wonder if there's another question that we can ask do you think that people are going in that's maybe the reason because there's so much self-doubt that they quit. And then if that is the reason why they quit, how do you work past that? Because you did. You said you're always looking around, comparing yourself to guys, but you didn't quit. As a matter of fact, they had to kind of tell you step away for a minute. Oh, yeah. Um, that's a good question. So for me, it was either graduation or death. There was no quitting. That wasn't even in the vocabulary. So I was going to the wheels fall off no matter what. And that's exactly what I did. Um, but I mean, to always know you have the goal in mind, you it's burning, you know, in your mind where you want to be. And that helps overcome all those other things. It's like battling the demons on your shoulder, right? Like this guy's telling you to quit. This guy's telling you, shut up, keep going. You know, pain is temporary, pride's a lifetime, that whole thing. And it, it, it was just go, go, go. Like even through hell week, you know, I put myself through, I, I never in my mind imagined I was ever capable of doing something like that. And then you want to talk about disassociating and separating from your body and seeing things in a, a different frame. It was incredible. 
um, you know, it didn't come without a cost, but that showed me right there that the human mind is way more capable than the physiological body, like hands down, like no if, and or but. And that's what ended up saving my life fast forward over 10 years. That's having that, knowing what I went through and what had happened to me and realizing that prepared me for what I was about to go through 10 years in the future. And that was pretty powerful when you figure that out later in life. So let me ask you then, the second part to that question would be, do you think that the military prepares people enough for what they're stepping into? Or do you think that we're still lacking in that area? And what I mean by that prepares them for it. Of course, we all know we've seen the movies. We've seen, you know, the news for the past 20 years about what they're doing. But do you think they're trying to sell an item or do you think they're really trying to prepare these guys to come in? Uh, we're talking about Navy or Army. <laughs> well, we can talk about both individually, yeah. but recruiting, because, I mean, let's be honest, they both missed their recruiting goals for this year. There was only one that made it. So th that's kind of my question is, are, are we preparing people really for this or are we just trying to sell a dream? Um, it, it goes both ways. What I've seen in the Army, it's it's – truly the quiet professional side of the house, the Navy SEAL side. I mean, obviously it's a, it's a bad, right? Like it's the thing, Every, no matter what you say in special operations, everyone says, Hey, you're an army Navy SEAL, right? Like everything is branded <laughs> on your Navy SEAL. So it's like a brand thing, right? The commando, the badass, that's everyone wants to be the Navy SEAL. They don't know about the other special operation branches. They don't know about, you know, CCTs and PJs and, you know, all the other one, Marsoc and all these guys, like it's Navy SEAL, but the Navy does an incredible job recruiting uh, out of like high school, out of colleges, looking for athletes, looking for those people that fit that bill. They do an incredible job of that, way better in the Army. And then th there's programs now that, you know, there's BUDS prep, there's Q course prep. Uh, there's a lot of guys out there with their own companies that are training people, civilians, to prepare to go through these courses and they're being they're very successful so i, I got a couple buddies doing that right now but th that is you're going to get a taste of that going through those programs whether you want to be there or not i can tell you that the cold uh is an equalizer and the, the the water so you put someone wet and cold in the ocean and let them sit there without doing anything else to them for a while they're going to figure out if they want to be a commando real quick especially in the navy to that you said and i've heard you say Special Forces, being a Green Beret is kind of a thinking man's game, um, more so than a lot of the other special operations. Comparing it to Navy SEALs, like you said, everything there, which do you think makes a better operator? Now, I don't mean who's better or Green Berets better, but which do you think, being physically strong or being able to adapt and kind of learn your environment makes you a better operator? That's actually a great question, but it's the mission. And so if you look at the Green Beret mission, it's not just direct action, right? You're going to have to do other types of missions. And even within our organization, there are special units that do different missions. And you have to be able to separate yourself from being commando-like and being able to work in embassies and other places overseas. I'll leave it at that where you can't look like a 20 year old ranger or seal with sunglasses on your head and tattoos everywhere, sleeve head to toe. And then the OGA starter kit, right? Like you, you have to have that thinking man's game of 
being able to fit in and be that gray man without the Rolex and the SF ring and all those things. And on the army side of the house, I was, you know, I was, I didn't know as much as SF as I thought I did until I got about halfway through my career and then really figured out what we do. And that was, that was kind of like the aha moment of, okay, now I know why this selection and this training pipeline are designed the way they are. And if you could take commandos from other branches and put them through that pipeline, you would have phenomenal operators. Like imagine just like, you know, a correspondence course where you go through SEAL training, then come through the special forces Q course to learn those other skill sets at a higher level, you'd be unstoppable. And that's what you see in a lot of the special mission units. That's what they do with their operators. They put them through the higher learning, so to speak, of being able to work in any environment and blend in. And, and that that's, I mean, look at it. Like I looked at the SEALs. It, it's like, it's like Ranger Battalion in the water, right? You're doing a direct action mission and you are, if you want anything dead or destroyed, that's who you send. Cause no matter what, they're not going to quit. They're not going to say no to the mission. They're going to get it done no matter what the cost. And some of the other missions that we do on the other side of the house, it's, hey, maybe it's not winning today, but in five years. Think of Afghanistan, right? We didn't win the war yet. We had a huge impact there and we changed a culture. And whether that manifests through in five to 10 or 15 years generationally to, you know, like Vietnam did, how long did it take before they you know, went back to realize, hey, we're an open market society now. We're not going back to where we were. We changed. And that's how we got to look at the SF unconventional warfare uh, method. It might not be on the X that night. It might be 5, 10, 15 years down the road. So, Okay. To that, though, when you say the long man's game um, or, or the long game, I should say, first off, I want to say, if we use that, like you said, to the SEALs, to MARSOC, to other things like that, and we make them better operators, do we have a better functioning force overall? Um, and that's by inner, because I know at some point you guys were interweaving with each other, running missions together, training together. With that, with that cross training going on, do we make a better fighting force for the future? And do we spread to those other operators that? long game profile like hey yeah this is great for the first six months but let's see what we can do in 20 years because if we're being honest that's kind of where we're at right now is long game goals for conflicts around the world right i mean expectation management when we i'll use marsoc for example when we were helping marsoc get stood up and get operational that was a huge especially for the recon guys uh, getting put into a fit environment. They're like, hey, man, we just came out of Fallujah or Ramadi. Uh, we don't want to go over and train these guys and, you know, build schools and do wells and all that stuff. They're like, we want to go crush souls. We're like, hey, you got to be able to do all of it. And, you know, you have to build that trust and that rapport with your partnered force or they're going to be killing you every chance they have if you're out doing stuff they don't agree with. So you got to understand this is more than just black and white. There's a lot of gray in here. And so MARSOC did a phenomenal job, it, like the learning curve with them was incredible, but you had a bunch of completely competent, like well-seasoned warriors that were coming out of Iraq uh, into Afghanistan and they were ready to crush souls, but they just need a little bit of fine tuning so they could be more effective on the battlefield with their partner force. And they picked it up and now they're running their own programs, they're doing everything. Same thing with the Navy, getting thrown into to land warfare, right? 
stuck in the middle of the desert without any oceans, they adapted as well. Uh, you learn in the big distinction between Iraq and Afghanistan, things you could do in one and not in the other, and then thrown on the continent of Africa. I mean, we're all learning from each other. And especially being a Green Beret, being a maritime operator, I learned a ton from the Navy community that I was able to take in the Army community and use that, you know, to my advantage of, hey, I've got all this training on the maritime side. Uh, I can help you out a little bit more on here for the combat divers as far as, you know, boat tactics that actually happened. Stuff I learned in the Navy, uh, small boat tactics and took it into Africa and employed it into a real setting and was out there doing boat tactics and, you know, beach raids and direct action hits with those dudes, you know, getting them to learn how to move, shoot, move, communicate, medicate on a maritime setting in a river in the middle of a landlocked country in Africa. So that was phenomenal. I didn't learn that part from the army side. I had that from my Navy side. So that made me more effective as a trainer. Now going back into the Navy, because we've kind of decided this is how uh, we're looking at special operations in general. I want to go back to you training because now we know that your mind stayed on it when you're back in buds and all of this starts happening to you first off i want to know what your thoughts are when you start breaking down uh you even did a run where your knee popped out that was one of the runs before you went to the island um and you kept going till you couldn't move anymore when you start seeing hey this dream might not be happening what are you doing that's panic mode that's just like helpless, hopeless powers change the outcome of the situation, right? That's PTSD by definition. Can't recover from this incident. Uh, that was like horrible. Like the anxiety you feel like that, because imagine going through like after hell week is when I started getting sick. Um, even in phase two, I had to miss one of my dives because my eardrum ruptured from a horrible ear infection. So I was on antibiotics from hell week. We all had cellulitis and pneumonia. So from hell week all the way through phase two into phase three, and that's when I rolled my second week of uh, phase three in my first class. But I was just getting sicker and sicker and sicker. And next thing you know, everything in my body was breaking down. I wasn't recovering. So every joint in my body, I was getting, you know, uh, I had no feeling in my two fingers and my hands. I had ulnar nerve inflammation. Uh, I had tendonitis in every part of my body. I started getting weird rashes all over me. Uh, my fingernails started ridging and peeling and the skin was starting to peel in my hands, but my body was just breaking down between stress, not sleeping and just overtraining, just more and more and more and more going into phase three. Everything gets more difficult. The run, runs get shorter, swims get shorter, the old course gets shorter. So you have to be putting out more. There's way more physical activity at the end of training. And it just, you know, it got to the point where nothing was rebuilding. So I was just in survival mode. No longer thriving in the training program, right? I don't think thrives ever a word in that program, but, you know, keeping pace, I'll say that, you know, expected damage and dysfunction. We were all jacked up in that program, but it got to a point where I was just clawing just to get by, you know, every single day. And I couldn't focus on anything I was doing because I was worried about what the hell is going on with me. I've never been in so much pain in my life, like systemically through my whole body. And then it was when I classed back up, we were getting ready to go to the island and run a 14 mile run. I separated my femur out of my hip socket. So, and I heard a pop, I heard a snap and it felt like marbles in there. And I kept going. I didn't fall out of the run. I stayed right, kept the pace. Next day I tried to get out of bed. I couldn't even lift my leg. And here we go. Another four mile time run, 
you know, it was just one thing after another. And it got to the point where my buddies were like, dude, what, what the hell is up? They had to help me off the beach, help me get to my room. And uh, it was nuts. And I remember getting to the point where the instructors are like, dude, what's up? And I'm like, you don't want to tell them, you know what I'm saying? Because your biggest fear is getting dropped from training, you know, and you don't want to let them down. Well, I want to stop you right there for just a second because I hear it over and over from guys that are in that community. I'm scared to say anything. And we're talking even big army, big Marines, where people say, I'm scared to say anything. They'll take me to the sideline. They'll take me out of the game. Going into our conversation later on, that's a huge problem. Oh, yeah. And it's starting at the very beginning of your career. So, one, a lot of people don't have an answer for this. How do we fix that problem? Because that seems to be the bedrock of what's going on. Right. Um, one, it's like, I'll tell you after I graduate, right? That's how, in the back of my mind. That's how it was. Hey, man, after I get past this, you know, benchmark, then I can say I need to get help. But I didn't want to threaten not getting through. This is this plays into what happened to me when I came back in the Army. Remember I was telling you that the second time I didn't do that. I, you know, I waited a little bit longer than I should have, but I actually raised my hand and said, hey, I'm jacked up pretty bad. Um, but going to your point, that's probably not going to change until like they can ensure people that, hey, if you get med rolled, we'll keep you here as long as it takes to get you through the program. That didn't exist in the 90s during the Clinton administration. I can tell you that right now. You sneezed. They were looking for ways to get rid of people. Bingo. They uh, Every day. Oh, you don't look right. You're gone. Oh, yeah, I don't like the way your voice sounds. See you later. Whatever it was, bad tattoo, you're out of here. Literally, those are things that happened while I was there. So it was it was one of those things where I was like, I'm just going to keep my mouth shut and get through this. Everyone else is sucking is just as bad as I am. So I just got to make it a couple more weeks. And that's how I saw it. I didn't realize how bad I was in hindsight. I had no idea what was going on in my body to the point where things were failing, right? That's like, you're exhausted, your body and your mind are exhausted, you're catabolic, you're in damage mode, you're in destructive metabolism. And here I was throwing all the antibiotics on top of that. And next thing you know, the wheels are coming off. Do you think it would be a good word to use scared? Oh, yeah, 100%. Like, I don't know how to explain it. It's like, you know, put it to relationship terms. It's like losing your woman of your dreams, like watching her like, I'm out of here, dude, see you later. And then nothing you can do to say to bring her back or change it. And it's like a slow train wreck. And you're just like, this thing is slipping away from me. This thing is slipping away from me. That was like every hour, every second going through, please, God, just keep me here. Let me get through this. It was horrible. It was like a bad dream. Is that ever dangerous? Uh, if you don't have a backup plan and you tie your identity to that, it's 1000% dangerous because Think about like the 15 year old kid that breaks up with his girlfriend. Oh, screw it. I'm done. Right. Crashes into a tree, does whatever. He didn't even think his whole life ahead of him. It was in that moment he felt like he could never recover from that situation. That's like one of the biggest risk factors for suicide is being in a situation you feel like you can't recover from. Right. That's that's also a moral injury. So if you don't have a backup plan or have some type of reference in the back of your mind of I should not be thinking this way. I can come back and do this and overcome this later. You're not going to be at that mindset. But when you're in survival mode and that's all you're thinking is I'm losing my dreams. It's very dangerous. I can tell you firsthand perspective. So that's where I was. This is a number. You probably don't know it, but what do we think 
Zero to 100, 100 people come in. How many out of that 100 don't have a backup plan and think that that's the end of the world? I know you probably don't have a solid number on it, but what are we thinking? I would say close to 40, 50%. Because I've seen it. I've, I've watched the guys that I went through training with that were messed up for quite a few years after leaving that program, feeling defeated or, you know, just burning in the back of their mind. I went through buds with one of the kids in there. Uh, he went through like six times. I don't know. I don't even know if he ever made it his sixth time. But imagine going through your mind to put yourself through that much misery. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like how yeah, much? Absolutely. Somebody, so that that'll tell you. I'm, I'm telling you, like, go through that training and then see how much you want it. You'll find out real quick. It's it's they have it to a science. So you, you have to want it. But going back to that, I did make it. How's it affect you? Almost every single person I know that went through that program that didn't come back and overcome that or go through another pipeline, uh, it's haunted them for their entire lives. Let's talk about that mentally. How do we fix that problem? I think the Navy actually did a pretty good job. The people that were motivated, that were you know good students that were there, they tried to keep them in the community one way or another, whether it's special boat units, whether it was EOD or dive program or the mammal program, the people they knew who was who going through that training. You figure it out real quick. Who's motivated and who's not. Not everyone is meant to be a frogman, right? But you can be probably an incredible Navy diver or a mammal trainer or something. But they tried to keep those people in the community. That's that connection, right? That's the connectivity of being in the community. It's when you get ripped out of that community abruptly and sent somewhere else that goes completely against your moral and ethical fibers, like the fleet. Like that doesn't sit well with a lot of people. Some people are just like, oh, screw it, I'm gonna go chip paint. But I can tell you if I got sent to the fleet, I would not be a happy camper. I know that you were taken out kind of to the beach and someone said, look out there, is that where you wanna be? Absolutely, every day. Is that when it first clicked into your head? Like, oh shit. It was, it was one of those things where like, I know where I'm gonna be, I'm not leaving here. You're gonna have to push me out in a stretcher or in handcuffs, but I'm not leaving this program. Like. I was getting through every day. I knew it was death or graduation. That's what was in my head, death or graduation. Like, I'm not leaving here. Let's talk about what made you so sick. Um, and in particular, I think it's the anti-inflammatories, the medicines that you were taking. But let's talk specifically about that. And then I want to talk about you already had your graduation announcements ready, all that kind of stuff. You had family on its way. Let's talk mentally about how you're feeling when you know none of that's going to happen. And now you got to go back to all these people and tell them it's not going to happen. Yeah, that was like, the, you know, going back to your parents and your family and your friends and be like, hey, guys, I'm coming home. Sorry. That was horrible. It, it wasn't. Thank God I had a little bit of a delay because it, it wasn't that abrupt. It was, hey, man, like when they actually started looking at me and figuring out what was going on. They were like, hey, this is a little bit more than we were thinking, right? There's a lot of more stuff going on, especially with my hips. And uh, they were like, hey, we'll put you at SEAL Team Fire for a while, let you hang out. And we'll try to reinstate you, you know, post land nav phase three, if we get you back in training. If not, you know, you can get out and come back later when you're better. Uh, so I kind of had that slow letdown, but it wasn't until like when I left there and I got my discharge out of the Navy that I was like, you know, it's like I chopped my reserve away from me on a jump. You know what I'm saying? I was like, oh, no, like I just completely went home. For me, everyone's like, oh, my God, you you almost were a Navy SEAL. I was like, yeah, cool. That, 
I'm not even going to say the analogy I was going to use that one. We can't say those things anymore, but it involved the, the Olympics. I'll leave it at that. <laughs> but it doesn't matter how close you were to being. I wasn't it. I felt like a complete failure. So it was hor I had to go back with my legs, you know, my tail tucked between my legs in shame. Basically, in my eyes, I was broken mentally and physically broken, like bad. And I knew it. And I knew if I didn't leave California, I'd be dead in a dumpster somewhere. So I was like, I need to go, you know, think things through, reflect on what I did wrong and try to get myself right so I can get back. I knew I had to do that back out on the East Coast, not California. So that's what I did. It's interesting that you say again, because I don't know if you do it subconsciously, but you just said again, when you're thinking about it, I'm the biggest failure in the world. And it always sounds crazy to me when people say that when they've been when they retire from special operations or when they're trying out or when they retire just from the military or law enforcement and they say i'm such a failure i didn't do this i didn't do that it's so crazy to think that you can't even look at it and go wow that was a very crazy learning experience i learned about myself i pushed myself harder than probably 90 percent, 95 percent of the world's population will ever do with you teaching these new guys, how do you teach them? There is something after that. So that's a really good point. And that's, I call it the no legs plan, the backup plan. When I re-engaged to come in the second time, I said, I'm not going to tie my identity to what's on my chest or on my shoulder. And I said, I'm going to have to have a backup plan. If this doesn't work out, what am I going to do to keep that same drive and motivation and determination into a, a different area? And that's what I went in. I, this wasn't death or graduation. It was graduate, but uh, not at the detriment to my life, right? Like I knew I had way more confidence going the second time than I did the first time, knowing what to expect. And then, you know, getting in, going through army basic training after going through Navy basic training and, you know, buds and everything. It was just like, oh, okay. <laughs> it's not so bad, right? Like, got it. Like, get me to the real stuff so I can get this stuff going and then get into the Q course. Then I was like, all right, this is where I need to be. But I was way more uh, emotionally intelligent and intellectually uh, capable. And I could see the big picture, knew what I had to do to keep myself whole to get through that program. And I did. I didn't miss a day of training the entire Q course going through that whole thing. So, um, But having a backup plan, knowing that if this doesn't work out the first time, I keep going until someone tells me to stop, not me. When someone else tells me to stop, I stop and then make sure I'm taking care of myself and not getting to the point where I can't do anything when I get out of the military because I'm so damaged. I see with heat injuries all the time, right? Dudes get a core temp over 108 degrees or they get a horrendous injury like in buds. We had dudes with stress fractures. We all duct tape our legs and stuff and just kept going until dudes stuff would fracture while they were running or doing the O course or something. Think about that, like how much determination and drive that would get somebody to do that, right? Like my buddy Brody, uh, he had to cut his bootlaces off because he had tendonitis so bad. And he like, you could see his foot poking out of it where his laces are supposed to be because there's so much inflammation. That dude was in massive amounts of pain every single day, but he kept going and he made it. And then, like I said, when you get to finish, then after you graduate, it's like, okay, you graduated junior high. Now you go to your team, right? You're thinking, okay, after training, I'll get taken care of. But then you show up to a team and you're like, I can't let these guys down. I have to perform. So the maintenance never gets done. So that's why we're trying to push the maintenance between phases of coming out of training, going to a team, post-operational deployment cycle, getting a look, getting maintained, and then get putting back, 
just like a piece of equipment, put back into operation. And that's where that needs to be normalized. I mean, it's like when we go through Sears school, they don't make, you don't go to any other school for weeks because they know what they put you through in Sears school. I'll give the army that. Like they're not gonna put you back into something like that. Or same thing after selection, after you do the trek and team week and all that stuff, they know your feet and knees and hips are, are smashing your back. They give you time before they put a rucksack back on you. It's like 30 day profile, you know, like you're not doing anything. Let your body recover, then we'll slowly bring you back. And I, we, we just have to look at that because at the end of the day, we have to get operators in uniform longer. We, we're not replacing as fast as we used to. And the recruiting pool is dwindling as far as capable bodies with IQ and no criminal arrest records or behavioral health records, right? So if we know we can get somebody through that assessment and selection process, and we're going to keep them, we need to maintain them and repair them and keep them operational. And that's where the focus needs to be. That's why all the human performance wellness programs finally realize that, okay, this isn't just about performing optimally. It's about sustaining and maintaining and repairing. And it's prehab, not just rehab. And you have to be thinking ahead of that. If not, you're going to be getting guys like we all were scraping by to the 15, 17 year mark. You get to 17, you're like three more years of retirement. I just got to go hide out and die somewhere, you know, and just make that 20 year mark. That's not what should be going through your mind. You should hit the 20 year mark and say, hey, do I want to do five or six years more? Do, how do I feel? How's my family feel about this? Right. I'm not, you know, on 15 different meds and my back's not degenerating out in my I don't have arthritis in my hips and three autoimmune conditions, right? You want to get there and say, okay, I still got gas in the tank. I might not be a pipe hitter on a team for six more years, but I'm going to keep this institutional knowledge up here, that human capital, and I'm going to convert that and train the new people coming up and give them all that knowledge. And that's, it, it's really, it's a no brainer, but it's, you have to understand it first. When you say that you came back in and you weren't graduate or die, all these different kinds of things, you had a different mind state. First question of that, do you think that's because there was a four-year time lapse in there? Absolutely. Talk about time to reflect and see stuff, right? And uh, knowing that, I guess you make your deal with God and you figure out your life's purpose real quick when all those things start happening and then you start realizing why they happened to you. That was the real motivating factor to me once I learned my purpose was like, okay, now I know where I'm supposed to be. And that happened halfway through my SF career where like the light bulb went off when all that stuff started happening to me the second time. And I'm like, now I know why I'm really here, right? Like I went through for my own reasons in the beginning, but now I know why I'm really here. And that was like the light bulb went off and I was just like, okay, that's true determination and grit. I'm going to keep this path. And I was able to start the program I did for Task Force Dagger while I was under an ODA. So I did that for 10 years while I was operational. And so imagine doing your day job and then running another program on top of that, being a Green Beret, right? Like, but I knew in the back of my mind it was the right thing to do. But it's crazy that you say that. It took halfway through your Green Beret career. The very first question I ask you is, why'd you do it? And you said it was to help the people. Yeah. That was the big reason why. Right. And so, but, but it took half of your career to go, oh yeah, that's why I did this. Which people, right? Help people. And then I figured out more of my buddies were dying from cancer and suicide than combat. And I was like, okay, where can I have the greatest impact to help the most people? And it, Afghanistan, no, like, you know how it is over there. I'm not going to get into that, but you help them there and then you leave. Then who helps them, right? They have to help themselves. But I 
saw that the people that I was working with to my left and right, that were going through some pretty horrendous stuff that sacrificed their entire life to go take care of those people over there. We should probably be taking care of some of the people back here. And that's where my priorities switched. And it was like, okay, combat's fun. Yeah, I love going on deployments. I, you know, that's all selfish reasons why we're going over there. You know, I don't want to let my buddies die. You know, you, you go through all those different things, you know, Freedom, America, Mickey Mouse, Disneyland, that stuff ended after the first deployment, right? Then it was keep your buddies alive and keep going. Once you figured out what was happening in that country, um, that all that shit went out the window was September 11th. We were there for each other. Um, but when you come home out of that and you see the, the impact that 20 years of war has on people, that was my paradigm shift, so to speak. Like, I need to take care of all these dudes because what we just did was unprecedented. And a lot of people are going to have a hard time when these awesome deployments stop and they have to go home and face all those demons head on. And that's exactly what we saw when the suicide started going through the roof and all those awesome deployments stopped. All those demons that we had that in combat we could deal with and be distracted and focus on other things. We came home. It was like hitting a wall. It's like smack right in the face with all those things. And then the only people that took the brunt of that were your family members or your teammates, mostly family members, right? Because when you're with your teammates, you don't really realize what you're all doing. But your family took the brunt of that, of us facing our demons. I want to go back to when you came in, though. You do this four-year chase. You you do everything that you can to get in. You don't give up. <laughs> now, uh, Colonel William Wong, he brings you back in. Have you followed him lately? So I try to look him up on LinkedIn. I think he's still around, but I owe that guy dinner or something. <laughs> like, 50 years. He just celebrated 50 years in the service, helping okay, out the so service. He's still in uniform or he retired? He, he is out of uniform. So he went to, after he brings you in, in 90, uh, let's see, I can tell you exactly. So 1970, he comes in, does yeah. his career. Uh, 1998, he goes to USAREC, works for a couple of years for USAREC, uh, changes into um, a civilian. And continues to work for USAREC. Now, you know his history that he's a doctor and all that kind of stuff, right? Correct. Okay, yeah. so. You got to connect me. <laughs> right. So he is, uh, he was the command surgeon when he went over to USAREC. And so I think that's what probably helped you get back in was. No, that was what they literally, I literally asked at the, at the MEP station. I said, hey, look, man, who's the one guy that can sign this waiver and put me in the military like time now? And they're like, ha ha. They're like, that's William Wong down at USAREC. I was like, cool. Can I have his email address? And out of spite, they gave it to me. And I, I still have the letter I wrote him. And all he I told him, I was like, look, man, like September 11th kickoff, a lot of people trying to get out. All I ever wanted to do was be a commando. Just give me an opportunity. I'll crush anything you give me. This is not how I wrote it. But, and I was like, you know, I won't disappoint you. Just give me, a, please give me the opportunity. All he wrote back was what MEP station you processing out of. I was in the military the next day, like after three something years getting punched in the face, telling to get out of here. I literally got left at maps. That's what I was just about to say. Didn't they leave you there yeah, at one point and there. just go fuck this guy and left him there? Yeah. I had to call my family to come get me in Portland, Maine. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. So I got left at the map station. Literally it was funny because I joined the Navy out of the same map station, same people working there and then came back and then tried to get in, got in the reserves. Right. So here's this guy like, who the hell you think you are? You know? And then as I'm out the door with an 18 x-ray contract, I was like, see you later. You know, yeah. I'm like, later, pal. Like, 
but got through all that. It's like the Legend of Zelda, right? I had to battle all the bosses to get through there. So I wow, that that's a deep cut. I got to tell you, Jeff, that's a real yeah. deep cut right there. So that's what it was like getting past the boss and getting to the next level. That was me getting through the Q course, right? And but I always learned it's that one person that can make that decision. And I mean, problem solve, right? Like get where you need to go. Well, you would be amazed how many people other than you, he helped get back in. He just received an award in 2020 for all the stuff that he had done. And there were probably four to six pages of people just saying, this was the guy that helped me get back in. This was the guy that helped me do what I was doing. This was the guy that, I mean, just page after page, comment after comment about this guy. So it's interesting to hear that that, that was the guy that got you back in. I'd, like I said, if you can make that hookup, that would be epic. But uh, yeah, I owe that guy everything, like straight up. Like if it wasn't for him, I would not be where I am right now, like hands down. Well, I want to put another person, Colonel Greenwood, that was instrumental in you getting to where you've been in your life too. I mean, yeah. it, it's not it's not easy for a colonel to come down to a private and say, <laughs> you've done some shit, stick with me, kid. I'm going to take you where you need to go. That's literally what he did. Incredible leader, incredible mentor. Uh, incredible human being, but that I looked, that was like my Colonel Troutman, you know, in Rambo, like that's how I saw him like this guy. That's the only reason I went to that unit, by the way, because I heard he was there and everyone spoke so highly of him. He was like, if anyone's going to help you out, it'll be that guy. So get to that unit. And that's exactly what I did. And uh, he was a, he was a detective in uh, Massachusetts police department, Quincy, I think it was, but Phenomenal Green Beret in Vietnam, right? Talking about he was a, an SF baby, 18 X-ray of the Vietnam era. And he knew exactly, you know, what my intent was to go into that program. So he literally promoted me from E2 to E4 again and was getting ready to send me off to drill sergeant school so I could pin E5 to go to selection. And then that program came up and he's like, hey, man, let's get you out of here. And that's exactly what he did. So that's how I started my transition program, right? I joined the military three times, separated twice. So like my experience of doing everything the wrong way helped me shape how to do it the right way for everybody else now. So that's where that came from. Let's talk about that for a minute. I want to kind of focus in on that. So he is, like you said, a special forces Vietnam veteran, definitely a different kind of era of green beret there. You had the Mac V saw guys, you had green berets, you had all different kinds. Do you still see that kind of mentality and that kind of leadership to this day within the Green Berets? Or do you think that it's something that maybe is changing, but almost had to pivot position? Right. I mean, I can't speak for as far as being in during Vietnam times, but there are inspiring leaders that are still in our regiment that are there. People know who they are. They're the people that, you know, when you get a shitty assignment, you're like, I'm not doing that. They're like, I'll do it for you, bud. You know what I'm saying? Like the gates of hell. There are those leaders that are still there. Um, but I mean, at the end of the day, they didn't fight like we did for 20 years. So a lot of people left disgruntled and bitter, um, and kind of got in survival mode themselves. A lot of leaders did, and we didn't know what they were dealing with. Right. But they were, Hey man, don't step on your crank. Cause it's going to prevent me from getting a star or a wreath or whatever it was. There was a lot of that, right. The, the ladder climbing the ladder careerism, we saw it, but there's still good leaders there. Um, there's guys that I still talk to every week that I'd go to the gates of hell with that were incredible leaders and mentors and they, they're informal leaders. They present themselves, right? People flock to them because they know they care. Rule number one. 
but that they talk the talk and walk the walk and you actually look up to them. And then, like I said, there's, it's in every organization. It's not just there, but there are some who are in it for their own reasons and will literally step on the backs of others to climb the ladder. That's, that's in every organization, whether it's corporate America or the military, but you find them all. You talk about Vietnam leaving disgruntled. It's a different kind of war. They didn't fight for 20 years and stuff like that. Not like what I'm saying is not that they didn't leave disgruntled. I'm saying we had a lot of our, they went through their own things and I can't relate to that. Right. They, there was almost 20 years worth of war, but probably like, look how Afghanistan ended and how. That, that was my point. That's what I was getting ready to ask. So yeah. we're in a similar situation right now. Yes. Um, where people don't understand what the mission was over there. Do we have a possibility of running into that Vietnam problem again? Uh, we saw it as literally we were watching on TV what was happening over there. Talk about a moral injury. That was horrendous. Uh, it, what do we do in every red cycle? I call it bury my dead friends. That's what we did when we weren't deployed. When we came back, our red cycle consisted of funerals, mostly. And it was just like, oh, crap. Like, okay. So we go to funerals, then we go to war thinking we're going to the next guy that our friends are going to be burying, right? And then you come back 20 years of that. And then it's like, hey, guys, uh, we're done here. See you later. We're going to leave all our partner forces to die. Um, sorry. Thank you for your service. That was like chop, right? Like we watched the Chinooks on the embassy in Afghanistan. It was Saigon 2.0. That did not sit well in this community at all. And then right after that, the pandemic hits, right? And then we get mandated vaccines and, hey, get out, take the shot or get out. It was like the one-two gut punch, like one after another with that moral injury of our guys just being like, we were good enough to fight through all this. We were good enough to, you know, deploy and do all these things through the entire pandemic without vaccines. And then all of a sudden, now we have to get them or we're going to get kicked out. Like you used us and abused us for 20 years, but now you're trying to make this thing go over. And that was like, I guess the cat's out of the bag now, but I left a quote in the Army Times. It was like, in in our organization, it's Dio Presso Liber, right? I mean, free the oppressed. And then like the flick of a switch in Afghanistan, it was Dio Presso, it was De Libero Presso, right? It was the opposite. It was like, okay, guys, we're going to free the oppressed, and all of a sudden we're going to press the free in like a switch. And it happened within our own organization. So it was like... Everybody after that was in shambles. And that's why so many of our people in our organization did everything they could to get everyone out of Afghanistan they cared about. And they were up for weeks at a time with no sleep and, you know, worked out of their home offices or, you know, their actual day job offices to run networks to re get people out of Afghanistan. So that that was pretty wild. I had, uh, I had Ryan Rogers on here last week and we were talking about um, who is actually kind of in charge of the military. And, and if you look at it, it's these young Congress people, it's the government officials, it's stuff like that that are really in charge. And then you look at the high ranking command, the senior command that's, you know, trying to pin on all those stars and then go into the contract world after it's all over and said and done with. That sets a dangerous precedence, especially in these times with as long as we were in war, that yeah. Someone who is never going to hit the ground out there, someone who is never going to see what these guys have seen on a daily basis, a monthly basis, and a yearly basis for that, for decades at a time, everyone says, just go vote. Go vote. But it doesn't seem to ever change. No. 
I mean, so so that's my question: is everyone says go vote? That's how we fix the problem. But so far, that hasn't fixed shit. That's literally how we got into the problem. <laughs> we don't soldiers don't start wars. Politicians with policies start wars. We enforce those policies. We fight those wars. So telling people to elect other people that send us to war. I mean, look at Tulsi Gabbard. She, she, she gets it right. Like she understands it. It's not their kids dying in the war. It, it's us and our families that are dying in these wars. So before we go do Afghanistan 2.0 and send our people somewhere else again like that, we might want to say who's got some skin in the game, right? We probably want to think through those things. She's done a phenomenal job of putting that into perspective of, hey, this is our national treasure right here, our people, our country, you know, fighting other people's wars. That doesn't that doesn't align with our Constitution, right? Like our government exists to protect our rights. And then after that, it's our national security. But our rights come first. And I think we've lost sight of that as a country. OK, so if <laughs> voting's not fixing the problem, no. what do you do? You can't just walk away. You can't just turn your back. Nope. And, and we saw this election, not as much, but I think there's a wave of military veterans that are running for offices, especially out of the soft community that know the only way to affect this is to become part of that system and influence the system and change the system. Talking about it's never going to do anything. And the whole January 6th type stuff, you're never getting anywhere with that. You have to take an active role in your local governments, start at a small level. I mean, even if it's a county sheriff, right, or a school board, you have to start small, make the impacts where you can get them and then work your way up through the system. But until we start getting our people in these positions, nothing's ever going to change. And, and that's just how it is. And we, everyone where I work, we know that. And that's why I said a lot of our guys are starting to run for office and get in there because they care. They, they want to see this country that they fought and died for to remain that country. And they don't want to see where it's like, what is it, 70 some percent of the country? So we're not going in the right direction, right? Like, I think it was actually 75%. 75% of the people. Okay, what happened to those 75% on poll deck? I know I'm supposed to be the blue person that votes for this, and I'm the red person that votes for that. So how did that make us go away from that direction we're going right now? It didn't. And so you can tell that the system, the country's been polarized. This is straight out of our own unconventional warfare playbook. And literally people will vote based on party line is tribalism, right? It's, you know, my tribe's the red tribe, my tribe's the blue tribe. I'm going to vote for anyone is in there and anyone is in that one. We're not getting anywhere together as a country. We're dividing down the middle and we're going off the cliff. And the quicker people can realize that just because you associate yourself with this party and that, that we can't understand each other. And, you know, you shouldn't be trying to force your opinion on anyone else. You should be trying to understand the other person's view. And that way you can communicate and realize that, hey, about 80% of the stuff we agree on, there's only a small part we don't. That's not the media narrative. The media narrative flips that around is that this minority is speaking for the entire country, whether it's far right or far left, right? If you're red, you're MAGA, right? If you're left, you're a commie. And that's <laughs> polarization, right? No, it's, it's absolutely right. But once again, the squeaky wheel gets the oil. Yeah. And that's, and who's controlling the media, right? And it's, if you don't- That's to be debated. It, yeah. So if, if, exactly. But it's like, if you're not with their narrative, they're going to ruin you. They're, you're canceled, right? So it's that fine line. I'd never be anti anything. That's why I tell everybody, 
uh, be pro solution, come up with a solution, right? And don't put people in a corner because they're going to fight twice as hard. So it, it's just getting where we be a better human is all I can tell anybody when it comes to politics. Do what's right for your family. Do what's right for our country. Don't you're not part of this party. They don't care about you. You're you're just a number on a chart somewhere, right? Like at the end of the day, it's not your best interest. So people need to be more aware of what they're signing on to, I guess, is what I want to say in summarization. How many years are we looking at before? I mean, you said, so we're getting guys into the government that can switch things around, that can do, okay, when they're freshmen uh, senators, when they're freshmen congressmen, when they're whatever, because we know the real power is going to be held, you know, in those senior guys. Yeah. And, and you know, we've had movies. Mr. Smith goes to Washington. There's a lot of different things that show, hey, I'm very idealistic when I get there, but that shit can change on a dime. So long term, what are we looking at? That's We have to get more of our folks, like I said, get involved, whether it's at the local, state level, county level, whatever it is, just get involved with something. Get your, uh, what's the word I'm looking for here? Your values in being aligned with our constitution, right? Like get, you have to be on both sides. You have to represent the American people, not just one party, the American people. You have to represent the country and get the country where it wants to go. If 75% of the people in this country don't like the direction it's going, we should probably ask which direction do we want to go? How does the 75% of this population feel where they want to be? And then listen to them and say like, okay, you know, think, think of all the hot topics, grievances, right? Talk about exploring things, but it's like abortion, gun rights. Like think of all those things that are coming in, right? And like you, they use them intentionally just to polarize people to one side, especially during the election cycle, right? It's science. Oh, yeah, it, it's exactly what it is. It's not by chance, right? But they're, that's exactly what they're doing. Because when you react out of fear and emotion, you're not using logical thinking. That's well-established. Right. Everyone knows that most people, I hope. But when you're emotionally charged and polarized because you feel like your life and your ability to get an abortion or whatever or own a gun is jeopardized, you're not going to listen to anything else except that person's the demon. Right. That person's a threat to my Second Amendment and the other person going that person's a threat to my abortion. So it's like whoosh, polarized, never going to budge on either one of those things. And then we repeat the cycle every four years for president, right? It's the same issues for the last better part of three or four decades of Second Amendment and abortion, right? It's, it's, we've seen the same playbook over and over again, but it's the definition of insanity, doing the same thing over and over and expecting, and expecting different a different outcome. Yeah, we're literally watching that happen. But again, the slow train wreck is what I like to call it. But at the end of the day, people don't change until catastrophe that's catastrophe changes people, right? It's like, Hey, I know I should quit smoking, but until you're in the hospital with lung cancer, like, Oh, now I need to quit smoking. That's how we are as a society. It, until it affects everybody in their backyard and affects everybody equally, people are not going to change the path they're on. So until it's like the boiling frog analogy, I hate even using that. So cliche, but literally until it gets to the point where people are saying enough is enough, then we need to do something. That whole red wave that was supposed to happen, that didn't happen, right? We were told it was going to happen. The media portrayed it, the polls and all those things. No, I, I told my friends, I was like, that's not going to happen. We, look what happened last time, right? When gas prices hit $7, you think, all right, we don't want to go this direction. 
when inflation goes up as high as it's gone right now, you would think, hey, maybe we don't want to go this direction. When we're one bad day away from World War III with Ukraine and Russia, think maybe we don't want to go that direction. China, Taiwan, right? Iran, North Korea. There's some pretty big things going on right now in the world, and everyone's focused right in front of their face, not seeing the big picture. And it's like, holy God, you know what I mean? I don't want to go on a tangent with all this, but no, no, like, no. This well, I, I think it's all going to uh, circle back around because when you mention all of this, you were one of the guys that was in these countries and we're going to talk about your deployments right now. You were in there to affect change for those countries. And then you turn around and you look at what's going on in our own country. Now, is it as bad? Probably not. There's, you know, you know but it, it, it's bad. It's getting to a bad state, but talking about your deployments, and you were one of those guys over there. And if you feel that strongly about it, that should say something. Yeah. That it's being run by someone who hasn't seen that kind of stuff, who hasn't seen just how bad it could get. Yeah. And so I also want to talk about how you just mentioned you don't do anything until it affects you completely or it affects everything around you. Because I want to talk about your deployments because you went through quite a few of them before you figured out, oh, shit my life's kind of in tatters right now. So I want to talk about the deployments. I want you to mention each year that you're talking about, because we're building up to around 2012 is when I really want to focus in. Um, so let's start with the deployments. You're at Firebase Cobra on the first deployment, very kinetic. Uh, you're out there doing your thing, but I want to talk about how you're feeling physically, mentally while you're doing those jobs. Right. I guess, it's like free fall. The first time you jump out of an airplane, you're all the only thing you see is your altimeter, right? So when you get on the ground in Afghanistan, it's all new and it's like tunnel vision. But as you go through your first few engagements or your ticks or whatever you're going through, the aperture starts opening up a little bit more. And then once you understand the geopolitical ramifications of what you're doing, then it's like the light bulb goes off, right? So first deployment in Afghanistan, we're taking out dudes that are coming out of Pakistan, right? And that are ISI. They're Pakistani government trained people that are trying to kill us. Literally like, okay, how much money do we give Pakistan and foreign aid? That foreign aid's going into training, assisting and advising and facilitating operations to kill Americans. That was like the, what the hell are we doing here? Moment for me. Like when we started, when I started learning all these things, and I was like, man, imagine the guys on their second or third deployment knowing this stuff, right? And you're like, holy crap. Remember I told you that whole shift of why I'm here changes once you start realizing what's going on. And same thing with Iran, when they were pumping in weapons and people coming in to kill our people, both in Iraq and Afghanistan and some other places. It's like, what are we doing to them? Like, I mean, now I see it in hindsight, what's going on in Ukraine, but like, you know, can't call foul when we do it, right? <laughs> but it was just like, holy God, there's so much more at play than just these people flew into a uh, building in New York City, right? It was the aperture opened up real wide of why I'm here, what am I doing? And we, di we did put a hurt on those people. And literally our first year, we literally accomplished our mission, right? It was to wipe out Al-Qaeda out of Afghanistan pretty much to disrupt operations so they couldn't hit us at home. We did that within a few years, right? But then we were there year after year. There was like, no one could define why we were there and what our end state was. Oh, we got to get Osama bin Laden. We got him. Did we stop? No, we went on for almost another decade, right? Like, 
okay, where where was this defined end state of what our measurement or effective was uh, effectiveness was and what success looked like? No one could ever define that. So for us, we were just like, this thing's never going to end, right? But hey, it's fun. We like doing what we're doing here, uh, and we'll keep going. Like literally, that's what guys did, right? So I did three back to backs just like that, and then it was when I got forced to be an instructor where what years are we talking about though? Those three back-to-backs, what are we so talking about? From, it was the Oh five Oh six, the six, seven rotation, the eight, nine rotation. Okay. So, yep. And then in 2009, I got picked to go be an instructor. And that's when I was like, cause mind you, I'm going back from basically May of 2003 nonstop. There were no pauses in between that. It was gas pedal mashed to the floor wide open. Right. Uh, I didn't have any regular army time before that. No J sets, no long training things, right? It was literally, I graduated Sears school. I went to a shooting school for two weeks and then literally got in a bird and went to Afghanistan. Like it was boom, right in there and then came back. And then all of a sudden, I guess all those things that I did in combat and compartmentalized, I didn't even to this day, it's still stuff coming back out that, holy crap, I didn't realize how much of an impact that had on me whether it was watching people, your buddies get wounded or bullets whizzing by you or almost dying so many times, I'll leave it at that. But it's like, you don't realize as those things are happening, how much that stayed in you, right? And how much of it impacted you. And, but in 2009, I knew I was dragging a dead body, like right off the bat. Like I knew something was wrong psychologically. I wasn't like, oh, my life sucks. I had everything I wanted. I was doing the dream job I ever wanted, but it was like someone pulled my plug and all of a sudden, I was existing. I wasn't living. I was surviving, not thriving. And I was there, but not present, if that makes sense. I was, I was this figure for my family and my friends, but I was not there. I was not there for them emotionally. You know, I was just, my mind was somewhere else all the time. And it was mostly downrange and didn't really realize that until even like 2012, 13 ish timeframe. And that's when we started the program why I knew I had to do what I had to do once I figured that out. So let me ask you, you, you're, you're building all this, you're doing three back-to-back rotations, 2009, you say you're carrying a, you're dragging a dead body with you. Let's talk about, uh, 06, 07. Let's break them down individually. Mm -hmm. I want to talk about how you were with your family and where the breakdown was. And the reason I want to talk about where the breakdown was, was because like I said in the beginning, over and over in your career, it, it's so interesting to me when I was reading about you and listening about you and listening to you talk. It's almost like you never see this brick wall coming until you smack into it. It happened in Bud's training. It yeah. happened in 09. And I just, I'm trying to understand the mind state to get in there and go, I don't understand. Like you can't see shit falling around all around you. You can't feel your body breaking down. Like, I've got to understand how you can get so deep locked into what you're doing that you can't see the forest for the trees, I guess. So that's learn that in buzz. Remember I told you about in hell week, suffer in silence, keep focused on the goal. If you worry about everyone else, you forget about your own stuff. So that's what I did. I worried about everything else, but my own stuff. And that's what crumbled, right? So maintaining everything else before yourself and whether it was going through schools, train ups, you never want to let your teammates down. You're getting split and then you're getting pulled from your family. If you do another deployment, I'm leaving you like those type of things. You're getting pulled apart. And the last thing that gets maintained is this right here, us. 
the individual. And so you lose focus on yourself because you're worried about everything else. And that's exactly what it was. When you're deploying, you're not worried about anything else except that deployment, getting everybody back home alive. When you come home, literally what you're doing is individual tasks, right? Training, you're going through your schools, then you do collective tasks and training, right? Like you come through as a team and then get ready to go back down range. So when we were home from deployments, that's all we were doing is getting ready for the next one. And so you didn't have time to do anything else except go through your schools, do your red cycle taskings, and then go do your pre-mission training and then get back out the door again as soon as possible. So between all that, you had to play dad too, right? Like I was a single dad. So it was, I was basically from, let's just say from six and seven into eight wasn't good on the home front. It was worse than combat. And so I was just like, get me a hell out the door right now. Well, can we can we talk about that? Because I, I yeah. want to ask a question, like you just said, and I don't want to interrupt you, but it, it really it comes to the forefront whenever you say, if you do another deployment, I'll leave you. Yeah. Is that a fair statement from that person? Uh, and yeah. what I mean by that is it is it okay for them to say that? Are they justified in saying it? Absolutely, 100%. I mean, think about it. I, I only saw it from my perspective, really, because I was in survival mode. So it's like drowning. You don't think about the person you're pulling down next to you. You're worried about staying afloat. So you don't see it. But I mean, imagine your spouse or whoever, like, I don't know when you're coming home again. I don't know if, if you're coming home again and who the hell is going to raise this kid. And when you are home, you're not home. And so that was like nerve wracking for that person. Right. So, yeah, I completely understand it and I get it. But at the same time, I didn't have that support network at home where someone was making my sandwiches and patting me on the way out the door and say, I got the base. Right. I did not have that. And it was horrendous. It was, you know, I was getting pulled split from both directions, from the military side and from the family side. And I was getting torn in half. And honestly, I was like, if I don't get out of this garrison environment and get back down range, probably not going to be around for much longer. So, you know, at that time, I was ready to cut the cord and get away because I was in survival mode. And I didn't want to be the domestic violence case. I didn't want to be the DUI case or any of that. I just knew I had to get away from that environment till I could get my head right. It sounds crazy to want to go to combat to get your head right. But like literally that's where everything made sense for me. I adapted to that. That's where I trained for. And that's where I felt I slept better in combat. Know your dudes got your, you know, your back, everyone on your left and right. You have damn guns, grenades, machine guns. You're good. But back home you're flapping, right? Especially one man by himself in the house, you're flapping. So that was like, you know, from, basically from 2005 my first deployment until 2010 11 when i got my divorce i was in survival mode just be like i need to do everything i can to stay out of trouble and not not in jail or not getting booted out of the regiment and it, that was like like i said combat was easy because i was focused there but back home was horrible it's horrible it's interesting though that you use the phrase uh I didn't have anyone saying I got the base making sandwiches, patting me on the ass when I go out the door. But then when you talk about combat, you said you slept better because you had the guy to the left and the right that you knew had your back. So that's why it's easier because you know, someone has your back there. Absolutely. It's like that pack mentality, right? Your team, your team is your safety net. That's why when dudes get wounded or injured and ripped out of that team environment, they feel like they're flapping. And they feel vulnerable. They're they're out there. They're exposed. And that's why, like, my whole career is why can't we just go anywhere, me and you, by ourselves? 
Why does it always have to be your buddies? Why do we always have to go anywhere? Because when you're by yourself with your family, you're in work mode, you're in protect mode. You're always looking for that dumbass that's going to say the wrong thing or do something. You're going to end up in a fight and going to jail. You know, it's just like one of those things that's not worth the hassle to drag your family out in this environment where you, it's like you've seen the worst of humanity, right? In war, you see the worst humans can do to each other and you know what people are capable and you have to go out in these places. It's just like, shit, dude, I just left that for eight months. I want to come home and chill out. You know, like I don't want to be out. It's you can't call PTSD, whatever you want, but it's called self-preservation. It's when you've put yourself in those situations over and over again, your mind and your body like to give you reminders of why you don't need to be doing that at those times when you're vulnerable, right? And that's adaptation. That doesn't mean you have a disorder. It's a disorder when it affects your family and your quality of life, right? Like, I guess you could say it was affecting my quality of life, but it wasn't going to combat that was affected. It was coming home from combat. The transition, that's where our dudes were having the issues. Do you ever say that to your spouse? Do you ever explain what's going on with you or do you just stay quiet, stay in that survival mode? And second to that, do you teach that now? I teach that now, yes. But back, I've been divorced since 2010. Uh, but great relationship with my ex-wife, obviously co-parenting a child, right? But mutual understanding of, wow, you know, you were going through a lot, had no idea. It was one of those things. There's no grudges, no regrets, none of that stuff. We both learned from it immensely. And she's remarried now, you know what I'm saying? I've been with the same woman for almost 11 years. So, but I mean, no matter what, remember I told you all that stuff bleeds off on everybody else of what we didn't unpackage from all that time overseas. And that's something I've been actively working on since, you know, I left my team in 2018 or 2019, whenever it was that I needed, I knew before I do anything else with my family that I need to unpack all that stuff and get it out. And that's why I went to NICO in 2012 to try to get a little bit of maintenance. Right. But before I retire, I'm going to get the full works up at the star program with the VA for 70 days. So to un unpack all that emotional constipation that I got back there so I can go into my next adventure <laughs> with an empty rucksack or at least not full and being able to have that capacity to work through stuff with my family. The first question to that, how did you, you said that you've been with this person for 11 years. Mm -hmm. First off, what's different? Is it you? Is it them? Is it a mixture of both of you? And number two, are you a little worried at the end when all that stuff's going to come out that that might change what we're talking about right now, where we're saying what's different about this relationship when all that shit comes to the forefront, you're a little worried that there might be some resorting back to that. So luckily for me, I started in the beginning of this, like the beginning wasn't the best, right? Like I had, I had to self-discover, I had to reflect, I had to learn and grow. And as I did, I'm like, oh, there's wait, there's two sides to every story, right? Um, I can't be the easiest guy to deal with sometimes, especially when things are triggering me in my environment. Like for me, it's not the, the gunshots or anything like that. It's when you're put in a position where your life is at risk and someone else is basically, what's the word I'm like, is complacent with it, right? Like, oh, not a big deal. You'll be fine. This isn't a worry. And then next thing you know, you're almost dead three times in one day. Right. And then you're trying to tell this person, hey, I think this is a little bit different than the last deployment. I think we might want to pay attention to what we're hearing over the radios. And next thing you know, you get shot in the helmet. Right. I you literally saw the end of your life coming at yeah. you in slow motion in a tracer. Look like a damn movie. Like 
coming right in, right? And literally, like, for me, I just shrugged that entire, it was a day and a night event for that one. But I completely shrugged it off, like, huh, that's just combat, right? Like, no big deal. But I never thought about the events leading up to it, what had happened to us in a first near ambush, and then on the way back, right? It was just kind of one of those things where, I don't know if it was complacency or watching some of our partnered forces not perform the way they're supposed to. But at that time, it was, hey, you just need to return fire, gain fire superiority, get this dead guy out of the truck, get in the truck, drive the truck out of there and get these people off the X. That was what was going through my mind after I'd been hit in the helmet with a tracer round, right? Like I didn't think about or process any of that. It wasn't until years later where I'm like, now I know when I'm trying to convey my point to somebody and they shrug it off or gaslight me or like, hey, not a big deal. That's why that's like one of my triggers. Like I will project that onto somebody else of, hey, dude, I'm telling you this for a reason. Like, I'm not just saying it to say it, but if you like, I always use the term, like, if you want to live asshole, listen to what I'm telling you, right? Like, that's what my triggers are. And fast forward, when I started talking about cancer and suicide and toxic exposures, and you're trying to tell people like, you can, you know, what's happening, right? 10 years before everybody else. And they're like, oh, shut up. That's not a big deal. That's not a thing, right? Like you're, that is coming back into your life again, like. So that's where it's like, okay, you're just going to make me dig in my heels further now and I'm going to fight back harder, right? So that was one of those things where you, if you didn't understand that, go into a relationship because it's a two-way street with communication, not one way. It's not army language, right? You need to be more of an active listener with your family, not the knife edge guy and telling them what to do if they want to live. That doesn't fly at home. So that was like- Not usually. Yeah, right? But- <laughs> we thought we were doing the right thing because we're army leaders, right? Like, so it was one of those growing moments where you constantly have to be aware of what's coming out of your mouth, especially with brain injury, with audio processing disorder, uh, with a lot of those things, because it, people are trying to convey things to you and you're not hearing the emotion in them and you're conveying back to them and they're not getting the emotion from you. So it's butting heads, right? When, it's just one of those things that makes the entire situation worse. So as I learned about my own conditions, my own injuries, my own brain injury, I learned that I was a big part of that problem of getting my message out there and how I was getting my message out there. So I was able to reframe and regroup and reattack the problem in a different, completely uh, new approach to it and get the message out there was way better received, not just on the family front, but with the health and wellness stuff too before. I was doing the team guy, you know, thumbs down on the trigger, brute force, violence, action, information overload. That doesn't, that's not received well. So I, I had to learn to take that PhD stuff, put it GD level, and then make it so a damn sixth grader could understand it. And I wasn't telling people what to do. I was getting them to realize by reading their information, making the decision for themselves to get the aha moment and go, holy crap, that's pretty easy to understand. I should do things a little differently. I should be aware of those things in my environment. So that was the maturity of figuring out how you were screwed up, how you interacted with other people, especially relationships and family, and then growing as a person, right? Traumatic growth and, you know, emotional intelligence, all those things. That wasn't until later in my career. But when you're in survival mode, you use lizard brain, not mammalian and human brain, right? So survival mode is the three things fighting, fornicating, and feeding. And that's what I did really well. That's all I cared about, really. 
and caveman. That's what I used to get called by my ex and my present. You're just a caveman. Those are the only three things you want to do. And I was like, yeah, I'm in survival mode. I didn't know it then, but that's that was it. I wasn't using this part of my brain to do the emotional part and the connection part and the philosophical part. I was just in, I'm trained to do this job. I'm going to do it well. And then everything else is a bonus. When you say that though, you, you know, when you said about learning and stuff like that, there was a point in your career when we talk about 2012 mm-hmm. where short-term memory loss, uh, you had a hard time learning, uh, no depth perception, like your body was once again, shutting down completely. Big time. Huge. Right. Like to the point where I knew this wasn't just all in my head. And when I started looking, I'm, I'm a why guy. So I need to know why I don't care about the what. Why is this happening to me, right? What can I do? That's the only what I care about. What can I do to make myself better? Because remember I told you I didn't want a medical discharge. I already been through that. My goal is to do 20 years, right? Be a team sergeant. That was it. I didn't know aspirations to be a sergeant major. I wanted to literally get promoted at 18-year mark, do two years of team sergeant, retire, and then go do all the health and wellness stuff full time. Like that was, I had it planned out to the T, like literally in, it was going really well. Well, I got promoted early. <laughs> so it was just like one of those things like, okay, I need to stretch that out a little bit in the back end. Right. So, but I mean, I was there, but when I started getting to the point where, you know, I was gaining weight, I couldn't remember anything, couldn't learn any new information. I was struggling bad, like to the point where I said, okay, I'm not hiding this. Like, cause I know what happens when you hide stuff. Right. And I learned from the first time I said, okay, I'm just going to go and tell them 75% of the things and see what happens. And I went in there and they were looking at me like crazy, like, what are you trying to do? You're trying to med board? Are you trying to med retire? I'm like, no, I'm just trying to tell you everything that's wrong with me so I can get help for it. That didn't like, they thought I was some weirdo, like going into the doctor's office, telling them things I was going through. But that goes back to what we're talking about. (laughs) That seems so counterproductive to think that way. Yeah. I mean, we're we're a community that doesn't self-identify or ask for help, right? Suffer in silence accomplish the mission, you know, sleep's a crutch, all those things, right? If your army wanted to have a family that would issue one, it's all about mission focus, right? So it's- But you agree yeah, if the mission is 20 years long fighting, you've got to stay fit to fight. So we have PMCS, right? Preventative Maintenance Checks and Services. We say humans are more important than hardware. First off, truth. How many checks and services does our hardware get compared to our humans? I'll leave it at that. All right. So humans are more important than hardware. Where's the operator maintenance? So that's something that's like my passion right now is driving that home on the active duty side is operator maintenance and scheduling it in and creating the time on the calendar to do that operator maintenance, putting it in there, normalizing it, that we operate and maintain our equipment uh, the same as we do our humans, right? We're preventative, proactive to prevent loss, damage or poor performance in death or illness, right? Like, so it's the same stuff. If you apply all those things we do with our equipment to humans, you get the same results. It's prehab, not rehab. And we're not going to, we have two level maintenance in the military, right? We say sustainment is the cornerstone of readiness, two level maintenance, level 10 done by the operator in the field. So repairing, maintaining, cleaning your weapon, keeping it in operation, radio, truck, whatever it is. Then if that piece of equipment gets damaged to a level where you cannot repair it, you raise your hand, this thing needs to go out of the field and get maintained and repaired. So I'm trying to get operators to say, hey, if you get to a point where you're doing everything you're supposed to be doing and it's not working, 
raise your hand and tell somebody you go get your level 20 maintenance. And then we're going to give you that time after your deployment to get those things squared away. If it happens before deployment and you're redlining, you need to be fixed. You, it, you're a liability to your team if you're redlining and go out in an operation, right? You're not an asset, you're a liability. So getting people to realize that in, in our minds, we think that we're the greatest thing since sliced bread and the entire team's going to fail without you there, right? But in reality, you're replaced in five minutes. The team is designed to go on. That's why we have redundancy built in with two MOSs, right? Like it's for a reason, but the, the show goes on without you, no matter what. Now, if six people on a team redline at the same time, you're going to be non-mission capable. So understanding the importance of maintenance and keeping people ready all the time, it has to be put into our schedule. If it doesn't, guess what's not going to happen? After doing everything you got to do for your team all day and then your family, who's getting maintained the least in your entire life? It's yourself. And so prioritization of doing the operator maintenance. And it, it's resonating well. No one says, hey, we shouldn't do that. Hey, no, sustainment's not the cornerstone of readiness. It's run until you're dead, right? Like no one says that about a vehicle or a helicopter. Fly it until the friggin' blades fall off. Drive it until the wheels fall off. That doesn't seat well, right? But with humans, it's it's accepted. Yeah, that thing runs until it gets cancer or kills itself or it gets med boarded, right? Or, you know, gets arthritis or something, right? Like think of that and like reflect right now what I just told you and see like, boom, right? The face palm of, holy crap, humans are more important than hardware. Okay. Okay. Let's talk about that. That's a great segue into that. Let's talk about a couple things. Neurotoxicities, traumatic brain injuries. I want to talk about the suicide epidemic, heavy metals and lead poisoning. So I'm going to do dealer's choice of what you want to talk about first, because this is kind of your life now. And I think it's what it's going to be after you retire. Yeah. So we'll start with TBI, right? Cause it's, probably one of the most important things because your brain controls how you adapt and overcome challenges in your environment, right? Like to the T, that's what your nervous system does, fight or flight, autonomic nervous system, right? Talking about all those things, without a properly functioning brain, are you going to adapt to your environment properly? Are you gonna respond to it appropriately? Are you gonna develop into a strong fighting machine that's, you know, super like, indestructible, right? In our minds, we think we need to be this. So for all that stuff to be possible, your brain has to produce all those hormones and neurotransmitters to repair, to rebuild, and to repel threats in your environment, right? So all the R's. And when you damage that system and that nervous system's not working, we're not even talking neurotoxicity yet. From toxins, we're talking from brain injury is a neurotoxic injury. So when that nervous system gets damaged, guess what you're not doing? You're not bouncing back and moving forward the way you're supposed to. You get stuck in survival mode. You're not in thrive mode. And so when you start doing that, your body prioritizes things real quick. Remember those three Fs, the fighting, feeding, and fleeing, and all those things, fornicating? Those. <laughs> I was about right to say, there. I think you messed up the third one, but that's okay. I was trying not to say the other word, so... <laughs> trying to be good for you so you don't have to bleep anything out. No, but. you can say whatever you want. Oh, fuck it then. <laughs> okay, kidding. there you but go. Yeah. So fucking feeding and fighting. So those three right there is where you go when you're in survival mode. So you don't access that other part of the brain for learning, for memorization and family life and all those things. So if you damage that and you get stuck there, you're not adapting anymore. You're surviving. So you're, you're not bouncing back and moving forward, which is the definition of resilience. So going tying that into suicide, 
right? So suicide is self, like when you get to the point where you don't want to self-preserve anymore, like you feel like you're ready to check out, that's not self-preservation. Your nervous system, your brain controls that circuitry that says, hey, I'm going to stay here and continue doing all the things I love doing on this planet, or I don't serve a purpose here, I'm gone. That's brain health, right? That's nothing else. So people with TBI are up to 10 times more likely to commit suicide. So if we know that the systems in the brain that control how we self-preserve, how we adapt, overcome, and eliminate threats in our environment and avoid threats, then we should probably focus on some of those things. So when you look at risk factors for suicide in the military this year, they put all their effort on gun safety and gun control, basically. How are we going to slow suicides down in the military? Go look at it, by the way. But it was, it was gun safety. So we're an organization that lives off a gun. That's like life sustaining, right? And if you take a gun away from anyone in our career field, that's probably going to be catastrophic, right? So we got to look at the physiological risk factors for suicide. The number one is TBI. It's the, the top cause of death associated with traumatic brain injury is suicide. So we're, that's a huge one. Is Were you aware of that? Like that's that's CDC, right? That's World Health Organization. Right. Well, I mean, and that's what that's what's being out there. But it, it seems contradictory to what you just said. When they went to attack that problem, it was gun safety, which is once again relying on a physical a physical problem. Object. Yeah, exactly. It's an object. The brain tells you to pick up that gun and pull the trigger. Let's, let's go back to that thing. Right. So do we assess brains? as much as we do anything else in the human body when it comes to the military. When you come back for deployment, you get, you're supposed to get the ANAM, right? Remember that test you took or the impact test that you never get any feedback from and you fail it three times and they tell you to keep taking it till you get a better score. Like that's very subjective. But if you can do a QEEG, right? Electroencephalograph for the brain, like when you do a sleep study to look at brainwave activity or look at hormones, which are the primary mediators of how you adapt and overcome stressors in your environment is pretty important things, right? Like hormones at a minimum to look at those things like cortisol is your stress hormone and testosterone is your thrive or rebuild your anabolic hormone, right? Catabolism, cortisol, anabolism, testosterone, gas pedal, brake pedal, destructive metabolism, constructive metabolism. It's that simple. And if you can look at those systems and to see which gas pedals match to the floor and which the brake pedal is not even being used, you can tell where someone is without asking them a question. If you look at hormones and neurotransmitters and brain activity, it's very objective. It's not subjective. And if we never baseline people to see where they're at through their career, we don't know when they're struggling because they're not going to tell you, hey, do you want to kill yourself? Yeah, I want to kill myself. I want to get lose my security clearance and my deployment and my school. No one's going to do that, right? Like there's start people are starting to come out there and talk about this. But it's usually the majority of those are over the 17 year mark where they got nothing to lose. They're already on the way out the door anyway. I'm like, yeah, man, I, I surveyed people for over three years and about 50 to 70 percent say they've contemplated suicide after the 15 year mark in soft. Think about that. I've done it live polling in front of the entire commands with the leadership sitting in the room with the family members, the spouses and the operators where they're like, yeah. And everyone's looking at each other like, holy crap, this I'm not the only person thinking this. Right. Like this is a real issue. But again, going back, tying it to your brain health, if we don't look at the most crucial thing 
that controls how we adapt and self-preserve in our environment, we're going to miss the mark on suicide. And that is one of the most important things when it comes to maintaining relationships, decision-making, right? When your frontal lobe suppressed and that's the only part of your brain being accessed in survival mode and it's dysfunctioning, do you think you're going to be at higher risk for addiction, substance abuse, domestic violence, all those things? Absolutely. Well, and, and that's the point that I wanted to say. Unlike you, I never went to combat. I speak from a law enforcement standpoint, and that's the point that I wanted to bring up. When you talk about coming back from combat and taking the test to make sure that you're okay, okay, that's not done in law enforcement. That's not done. Hey, are you good with that critical incident that just happened? Or, by the way, are you good with those 20 or 25 or 30 critical incidents that you handled this month? Yeah. And so we go back. It's not necessarily a traumatic brain injury, but we're definitely seeing an uptick in things that are affecting us, whether that be alcohol or, or whatever it may be. So if we're not talking about traumatic brain injury, how do we look at it from a law enforcement perspective? Because I think that you can answer to that for a first responder and stuff just by the research that you've done. So I'll, I'll tell you right now, like take the blast over pressure and jumping at airplanes out of this. And we'll just go back to trauma and any type of brain dysfunction, right? So how long were you a police officer for? Well, I'm still active. So 16 years I'm at it. Okay. So you see trauma daily. You don't have a six month break from it, right? You don't come home and hang out. Like literally you could go from a shooting incident to your dinner table in less than 30 minutes, depending on how much paperwork you got, right? Like it's repetitive trauma, way more than we saw in the military. I, law enforcement, I got two brothers that are firemen, right? It's trauma every day. It's in your communities with people you know, kids, it's everything on a daily basis. That's massive amounts of trauma. So when we're talking about sympathetic dominance or hypervigilance, that gas pedal's mashed to the floor. So when you're on that gas pedal, that's destructive metabolism. That's driving up inflammation. That's not deep sleeping. That's setting yourself up for high blood pressure, setting you up for high cholesterol, setting you up for sexual dysfunction, because that gas pedal survival mode. And to be on the, the rest, digest, feed, and breathe side, that brake pedal, that thing needs to be pushed to the floor. That car needs to be out of the street and in the, in the maintenance shop, which is your bed, getting repaired and maintained. Now, how do people in our walks of life deal and manage with stress? They don't. They drink oh. or they don't. So I call it all things fun. Alcohol, tobacco, females, and firearms, right? So think of survival mode, the three Fs that we talked about. What do we gravitate towards? Now, those activities, right? So alcohol, group one human carcinogen, very addictive. Tobacco products, cigarette products, Group one human carcinogen, highly addictive. Sex, we're gonna, we don't have to explain that one, right? Highly so, addictive. Highly addictive, but also the leading cause of oral rectal cancers are STDs. So three things right there that we love doing are also the three big drivers of cancer and dysfunction, metabolic dysfunction in the body. And we use that to cope with our stress and trauma. So it's like adding gasoline on a fire, right? So you think you, uh, that drink will take that edge off, and then I go to bed and my body's trying to process poison all night long. I'm not getting any repair or maintenance. You wake up the next day feeling like crap. And then you repeat that cycle every day. Do you think you're working on maintaining and balance performance or you're degrading performance slowly over time until it becomes the trip to the hospital with a heart attack with the DUI or the divorce or any of those things, right? 
you're slowly setting up for failure. You're in survival mode. You're not rebuilding, bouncing back and moving forward. You're not thriving. And so first responders have the same type of cancers and suicides as our military, right? Not from the same exact things, but it's the environment and the lifestyle of that person. And it's a stressful environment and it applies to everybody. So it's, you hear the term operator syndrome all the time. It's, it's metabolic syndrome. It's high allostatic load, chronic, unmanageable, helpless, hopeless powers, change the outcome of a situation, trauma, all those things that we get in those environments have the same physiological effect on every human. So it's not just operator syndrome. We got a couple of things in there that are unique to operators, but this affects everybody uh, the same. So let me throw another one on there, another factor on there. When you look at my career, I'm at 16 years. I'm, I'm not out answering calls every day now. Uh, I'm not going from that call to call to call to call. What people in my position and, and later in their careers, we know what the bad guys are going to do. We know no matter what the job. And like I said, I'm not out in the street every single day. Um, but you start to look at other things. The public does not like law enforcement and we hear it over and over. We talked about the media. We talked about polarization, all of those kind of things. If the past couple of years have taught us anything about the riots that happen in cities, they burn down major cities, things like that. When you take that into effect and you look at now, we think that the public's a, a, against us or the person is carrying that in, in their rucksack, thinking about that. They're not worried about what the bad guy is necessarily doing because the bad guy is going to be the bad guy. But then they start worrying about senior leadership. They start worrying about if their job is going to be around, if the pay is going to match to what's going on around the world. You get all these different kinds of factors that aren't necessarily that call-to-call basis. How are we working on dealing with those things? That's a very good point. So we'll tie that into trauma and moral injury. Okay? So when you're already in a bad situation, the only thing you want to hear from someone is, I got your back. Right? But if you're in a bad situation and you have that person in the back of your mind saying they're going to ruin my career, they're going to, you know, think about what you guys are just talking about, right? With law enforcement, if I do this, am I going to be, you know, on Fox News or CNN getting called the bad cop because I had to defend myself? If you go into that situation with those things in the back of your mind, that is horrible, right? Not only you're not focused on what you're supposed to be doing, but that's that moral injury of betrayal. Like I have to worry about the people that are in charge of me that have power over me making one mistake, right? Zero defect environment, whatever it is that weighs on you more than it's the worst form of stress you can endure as a human being, hierarchical stress with people holding power over the top of you. Right? So being in a situation where you're helpless, hopeless powers to change the outcome of the situation. And you have that fear in the back of your mind of somebody is going to punish you or make you pay for that. That's like sexual abuse or rape, right? where you're in an abusive relationship where you don't feel safe and someone has power over you that wears on you on time. That's the worst form of stress any human being can endure. That's not just a military problem. That's an everybody problem. And so think of all the careers where you're in when someone holds power over the outcome of your future, right? Or your family's well-being, right? If I do this, I'm going to lose my job. My family loses their benefits. My kids are screwed. Like you have that in the back of your mind where you can't focus on your job. So imagine if the entire military had that on the back of their mind the entire time we're fighting the war. Well, if I shoot the bag, it did happen with some rules engagement, certain years, I'll leave it at that, where everything you did was under a microscope or an ISR platform where you knew people were looking for you to do something wrong. And you're just like, 
we don't even want to go do these things because we know someone could possibly punish us for doing our job. So you never want that in the back of your mind as any person that's putting yourself in harm's way. You know, morally and ethically, you should do the right thing all the time. So you shouldn't be worried about that aspect of who's watching you. But shit happens. Mistakes happen. If you're in a zero defect environment, you're walking on eggshells every day. That's no way to live. That wears you down. That's that gas pedal mashed to the floor. And that's that thing going on in the back of your mind 24-7, telling you all those bad thoughts of why you should be worrying or ruminating over them. I heard you say one time, uh, and you said it was even a little cliche when you said it, but when you accept that your death is imminent, that you can focus on what you're doing, that when you accept it into you, you can work on it. Yeah. And I just thought of that when you were saying that, though, when you can't focus on the job at hand or you're worried about a mistake happening or it's not the same as accepting your death. But would it be the same thing to compare it to, say, accepting your fate? Um, I mean, at the end of the day, it's do what your rank can handle, right? For you being in law enforcement, whatever is like, you should never sacrifice your moral and ethical guidelines and codes for a paycheck ever. And if you feel like you're in a position where your, your career is not aligned with your values, then you should probably find a new job, right? Cause that thing's not worth it. I think that's where a lot of, after the pandemic, it really helped people reflect with that time at home of what do I want to subject game myself to for the rest of my life? That's like where we had that huge, you know, what do they call it? Uh, quiet quitting or whatever the hell it is, where people are in quiet firing, whatever it was, silent firing. Like people just universally understood there's more to life than a paycheck. There's more to life than forcing myself to run into gunfire every day for what? Like, I think one thing that came out of the pandemic was that. Like people had some time to reflect of, where on the scale does my family and my life and my future, or is this just a paycheck? If you're doing a job you love doing, it's not just a paycheck and it, it goes with your values and your morals, then you have nothing to worry about. But if you're in any environment where it goes against your moral and ethical code and it becomes a paycheck, you're going to be the person that's at higher risk for that moral injury or those things happening to you because you did it to do it, right? Not because that's where your heart was or whatever. So. Um, I mean, law enforcement, why are you there, right? You wanted to help people. You wanted to make a difference. But did it get politicized? You know, did things started, you know, think of those police departments, like think of Chicago. Like that's like Chirac, right? <laughs> like you're in gunfire every single night. And what am I doing this for? How much? You know, why am I here? I, I'm not, like I said, I, I don't envy any police officer in today's day and age. I don't because you're literally cannon fodder and then politicization is making people want to demonize police and dehumanize police. They're becoming targets. And we've watched it happen. It's a straight up curve, right? With officer shootings over the last three, four years, it's, it's incredible, to, not incredibly good, but it's like horrible, but incredible at the same time, people don't realize what had happened. Remember we talked about those techniques of, it, it's like the steps to genocide, you ever hear about that? like polarization, dehumanization, you know, treat them like subhuman. Uh, these people are the enemy. And then everyone next, yeah, they're the enemy. And then, yeah, screw, fuck the police, right? Like, think, like, what was that? Well, I can't remember what it was during the riots, but it was something about the bacon cops, whatever it was. Remember the chant? Like, there were there were a ton of them. Fry like bacon, whatever. Well, I can't even remember. But 
it was like I was hearing this on mainstream media, playing, 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 watching the polarization happen. It was like, this is straight out of our playbook overseas. Like we're watching this happen right here. I would hate to be that cop right now. Like would not be, would not want to be that guy. Right. That's, that's a moral injury for police officers. Right. And I think, you know, guys and, and ladies that have my time on have, have been, you know, through it. I think it's the same in your career field. We, we kind of know the lay of the land. Uh, we know where to move to. We know how to deal with situations and adapt to situations where I worry about it is new, new people coming in that it's going to blast them in the face and, and they're, they're coming in thinking it's going to be one, one thing, like you said, when you get dropped into Afghanistan and, and it's a whole new world and you're seeing a very narrow, they can't take in the whole picture. I, I think that's why we're not meeting recruiting standards. I think that that's happening not only in the military, but in law enforcement and first responders too, because we have closed down that peripheral vision so much and focused on just the, hardcore things that are happening. Right. I mean, at the end of the day, go back to expectation management. And the other thing you gotta do is pay law enforcement. I mean, you can't, it's like teachers, right? You think teachers would be one of the highest paid professions in the United States. Our children are our future, right? So why are teachers getting shafted? And why aren't we setting the bar higher? Same with fire police or any public servant, first responders, like you're putting your life on the line, you know, why wouldn't we compensate people and put more training into these programs where you're getting all the tools you need? Do you ever hear of any first responders ever getting any type of training on trauma before it happens? No, it happened. Oh, we're going to send you to a seminar after you have PTSD or after the shooting, then we're going to send you to a class. You probably want to know about trauma before you came into a, a career field that you're guaranteed to get repetitive and chronic trauma, like on a daily basis, like, Okay, what does this mean? How does it affect me? When is too much, you know, what does too much look like, right? When do I need to raise my hand and do something about it? We don't do that. That's like, there's no instruction manual for the operator, right? There's no instructions. You're like, hey, we're going to teach you about law enforcement, but we're not going to teach you about how law enforcement affects you. <laughs> and, and and I think, once again, where I, I think that they're, they're making progress to that. I, I yeah. think it's a slow progress, but... Once again, it goes back to that thing that I asked you about, about recruiting with the military. Are we selling a dream or are we selling a lifestyle? Are we letting people know, like, you know, we can talk about all the great things that happen. It's very easy to remember the good things. Yeah. Um, it's hard to remember the bad times. Are we in the military and first responders? I think that I'm very worried that we're selling a dream, not a lifestyle anymore and letting these people know this is what you're really signing up for. And it goes all the way back to what I said in the very beginning to yeah. you, that you took a different approach to it. You said, this is going to be a lifetime for me. I need to make sure my shit is straight before I go into it. Absolutely. And that's, that's that whole expectation management. And that's what we should be doing. You know, we do it with the professional sports, right? Hey guys, we're going to train you up to this level and we're going to get you here. And then you have to maintain that. It's all managed for them right? Like once you're recruited and put in professional sports, the whole wellness part is pretty much managed for you. You have a coach and a, a mentor for every aspect of your life, whether it's sleep, nutrition, everything is, hey man, we want you to be optimal because guess what? We got a lot invested in you. You're a commodity. So we need to keep you at this level. We're going to provide this level of maintenance for you. The military does not get that. Like 
that whole wellness part of all those things being managed, I call it the other 23 hours. So imagine we go to the gym at work or these training centers we go, you know, and get tuned up at and get all these workouts. And then it's that other 23 hours. What are you doing yourself? I'll tie that back to the toxic exposures and the sleep disorders and all those things, right? So the other 23 hours, is that managed for us or is that something we manage on our own? We figure out as we go. Like I didn't get any classes about toxic exposures. I didn't get any classes about sleep hygiene. I didn't get any classes about relationship management of how the job was going to affect my relationships. Literally, like I said, back in when I came in, it was if the military wanted you to have family, they'd issue one, right? Like that's not our priority is your family, but they figure that out later. That's why we have preservation of the force and family POTIF. But it was like one of those things where it's like, man, I wish I had this information 20 years ago. And so we're taking that information that all of us senior operators have said, wish I had this information 20 years ago, we're putting at the beginning of the career. So they're getting that information about the health and the wellness, the human performance, and then the wellness aspect. Human performance is what we associate the gyms with. And then the wellness is what we associate that other 23 hours with that we're not in the gym. And that's sleep. It's controlling your controllables, right? It's understanding what's in your environment, what are the hazards in it, toxins, carcinogens, whatever you want to say, you know, stress, trauma, how's that affect me? What can I do to prepare myself to go in that environment, to be less fragile, more resilient? And then also impacting that's finances as part of wellness, education, relationships, spirituality, all those other things also fall in there, that whole human capital thing. And so how can we optimize wellness to get the operator more resilient and more effective on the battlefield, right? Military cares about a few things, lethality, readiness, retention, recruiting. Like those are time, blood, and money, the other ones, right? Save time, blood, and money. But if you can figure out how to put all those things and increase readiness, lethality, retention, and recruiting by creating resilient soldiers that are way more prepared for their environment, understand their environment, so they actually invest in themselves and want to repair and maintain themselves and not run themselves into the ground because fuck it, right? Like that's how we were, right? We'll, we'll, I'm going to put away wet and friggin' abused, right? Like I'm just going to go until the wheels fall off till I can't do this anymore. And that's literally what I did the first time in my career, but I knew that there was more to life after the military. And so I sacrificed everything that I wanted to do racing mountain bikes, lacrosse and college and hockey and all those things. Like I put all those things on the shelf to go do what I want to do. But when I retire, I want to go back and do all those things I love doing. And that was surfing, mountain biking, skiing, riding dirt bikes and doing all those things. I don't want to be a burning ball of shit when I retire. And all, <laughs> yeah, cool. I, I, that's what I call it, burning ball of shit, BBS. But like, I don't want to be that guy that's like, yeah, I'm going to, you know, put my ribbons up in my friggin' wall and be like, I don't want to live in the rear view mirror. Like, cool. Like I did that job. I love doing what I'm doing, but I'm not going to live in the rear view mirror. I want to live and I want to go do new stuff. I want to go back to living and doing all the stuff I sacrificed for. There's way more to life than just doing what we did in the military. And like I said, I didn't do it for a job. It's because I was doing what I love doing. And then I said, when it ever gets to a point where I'm not love, uh, loving my career, what I'm doing, I'll walk out. I'm still doing what I love to do with a uniform. I'm stuck I'm still there. I didn't I can take a medical retirement any day. Right now, walk away, see you later, go take that six figure job. But right now I'm doing what I love doing and I'm making an impact, helping people, which was literally the deal I made with God 
to get me back in the military. It was like, hey, man, give me the opportunity to do this. I'll spend the rest of the, my life helping those that help me. And that was like, I had that on my paper, on my fridge. Like, what are you going to do? There's no such thing as something for nothing. What is your deal? What are you going to give back to? So I'm living what I said I would do. So I have zero regrets. I'm doing exactly what I'm supposed to be doing. That's my purpose. I figured it out and nothing's going to deter me from that. Let me, let me do a quote from you. And then we're going to talk about human performance and wellness. And we're going to talk about task force dagger, because I think that's the way to kind of wrap this whole thing up. You said that there's no silver bullet. Every person reacts differently. And that's why we advocate for personalized precision and performance medicine. Now, as we all know, Military-wide, law enforcement-wide, first responder-wide, and just citizens of the United States-wide, that doesn't happen. You started Human Performance and Wellness Program. You were asked to do that. You helped stand it up. You did things like the Thor Program, and I really want to talk about that. I had two guys on the show, Nick Lavery and Ryan Hendrickson, that that, uh, went through that. And uh, some amazing things came out. Now, I think more than just the physical, they were at a very good state mentally to push through that. Um, But let's talk about that. The personalized, how you look at that in the human performance and wellness, and then how you took that over being a volunteer and helping stand up Task Force Dagger too. Okay. So when you hear personalized medicine, the first thing, any big institution thinks we don't have time and resources to do personalized medicine. Okay. That's cool. So what we can do is collaborative care, right? We're doing it in the NICOs and the STAR TBI programs, right? Where you have a team of providers that work together to look collectively at a group of people. And we can assess a group of people by putting things, assessments, right? That's our operator assessments. We put assessments in there to check function. Where are we compared to our baselines? Where are we compared to the people to our left and right? What is normal? What is optimal? What is suboptimal, right? We have to differentiate those things because not everybody's the same. So same, same medicine, we wouldn't do same, same battle planning and mission analysis, right? For operations, we do precision strikes. We do precision shooting. So because we can't have a massive amount of collateral damage, medicine is no different. If you do one size fits all medicine, the darts, throw darts, just throw pills at it and see if it works. If it doesn't, we'll try something new you're gonna have a lot of collateral damage. And we've seen it. I mean, as we progress as a society, our life expectancy is declining, obesity rates are skyrocketing, Alzheimer's is skyrocketing, diabetes, all these chronic illnesses are going straight up. And we have more knowledge now than we did 50 years ago, right? So if we have all this knowledge, why are we getting sicker as a society, right? Because we're still doing the name it, blame it, tame it, bill it, refill it game. We're doing what medicine, not why medicine. We're looking at the disease, not the person. We're looking at the dysfunction, not the actual root cause of that dysfunction, right? So if we can look and understand our lifestyle and our environment, if we already know that 90% of doctor's visits are stress-related, right? That's, you can go to the CDC and look at that. If we know that, then how come we don't put emphasis into lifestyle and environmental medicine? If we know your lifestyle and environment are the biggest drivers of chronic illness in doctor's visits, right? The emergency medicine helps you after the emergency. They help you after you have the heart attack. Hey, 911, help me. Or, hey, I've got high blood pressure. The high blood pressure is the what? What is causing that high blood pressure? Do they go in and say, hey, you need to 
stop eating X, Y, and Z, or make sure you get this much sleep, get a sleep study and do all those. It's starting to happen now because people are looking at the why, not the what. So to do personalized lifestyle medicine or performance medicine, you have to understand why you're doing it. Not just because all oh, it's expensive and only pro athletes get that. We don't have time, blood and money to do all that, right? It's, it's always, they find a way to know, not to find a way to yes. But when all of our operators go to these programs where they do lifestyle and environmental medicine, they get the best results. The dudes don't come out of those programs and go, that was a complete waste of time. I should have never done that. They go, hey, you, you, and you get your ass into that program and save my life. This is the way things should be done. If we can hear that repetitively from everybody we send through these programs, why wouldn't we adopt that and do it internally in our organizations? That's what we started doing with the human performance and wellness programs. So collaborative care, you do an operator assessment on someone and then red, amber, green, see where they're at. And then amber and green, you go over here, you're doing level 10 maintenance. And anyone that red lines or is up here, the level 20 maintenance, all the time and attention from the medical staff and all the providers goes to those people. So we're not doing personalized medicine on every single person coming through. We're doing it on the people that identify as redlining. And then we're teaching people how to do operator maintenance at a lower level so they can repair and maintain themselves. We take that work off the providers. If they're healthy and maintaining themselves, they're not more apt to be in the emergency room with heart failure or COPD or Alzheimer's, right? Like if you know how to repair and maintain your equipment, you're going to keep it operational longer. It's going to be more effective on the battlefield your weapon. So if we get people to understand the human weapon system, repair and maintain and operate it the way you're supposed to, it lasts longer and performs better. So that's what we're trying to show with the human performance and wellness programs is that we're the human weapon system. It needs to be, you need to how to put the thing in action, how to, you know, identify malfunctions, correct malfunctions, and then how to clean it, repair it, maintain it. That's operator level maintenance. So human body and the mind, how to operate it, maintain it, identifying correct malfunctions, and then how to clean and repair it, right? That's, it's that simple. And once people see that, they're like, oh, no one's gonna say that's a horrible idea, right? Why, they would be like, why didn't we do this 20 years ago? And that's where we're at now. There's the paradigm shift in medicine where it's going in full circle back to holistic health and wellness, right? The, mil the VA has what's called the whole health initiative. It's holistic medicine for the VA. And a lot of people haven't even heard of it, right? The military has H2F, holistic health and fitness. Holistic being the first word in that. Holistic is the mind and the body. Remember the, the wellness part of that is teaching people how to control their controllables and how to be aware of their environment. So everyone's going this direction already, but they don't, they don't understand the why, they understand the what. And once people can figure out why we should teach people how to learn about themselves, their health and their wellness and invest in it, it's preventative medicine. It's proactive. We're prehab instead of rehab. And then we can prioritize. Think of COVID-19, right? Do we need to lock everybody up in their homes or only those at high risk? Where do you think those resources would have been more useful to the people in the nursing homes? They were put in there and left to die, right? We didn't use our resources and prioritize those resources like we were supposed to. And we didn't teach people how to become resilient to a virus. We told them to either get a vaccine or socially distance or you're gonna die. We didn't say, hey, cut alcohol and all these other things that drive inflammation, prioritize sleep. If you have untreated sleep apnea, get that taken care of now. None of that happened. It went total resilience on a drug or a friggin' shot in your arm. There was no lifestyle and environmental modification pushed. 
That's why a team of us uh, that worked together created what was called personal protective lifestyle, personal protective nutrition. Two doctors I know did that during the pandemic and it, we transferred that into the military with the health and the wellness post pandemic, not just for COVID-19. So personal protective lifestyle and nutrition falls in with that operator maintenance. And that's creating resilient operators that perform better, last longer, and want to stay and be part of the community and not just be in survival mode, clawing, kicking and screaming. Why are we so slow uh, to accept things like the stellate ganglion block? Uh, different things that they're trying to make, alternative therapies, alternative medicines. Why are we having such a hard time bringing that into the military? Why and making it available to everybody, not just a select group of people? Implementations of bureaucracy in any government institution. We have great idea fairies. We can create the best things in the world, speed, time now, right? But implementing them and getting them in there is a bureaucratic process. So to get anything put into operation, FDA approved, randomized, double placebo, 10 years of studies, right? So we had Operation Warp Speed with the, the vaccine. That, that's unprecedented in our history to get something from an idea into your arm, right? That never happened before. Take all politics out of it. It was a miracle that that even happened, whether what your views on the vaccine are or not. Just to get something into implementation that fast was unprecedented with the United States government, right? So what we're seeing now is our people in our community going outside the bureaucracy to get help. But there are things that the military, I mean, we have great leadership right now that knows these things are effective that are actually doing the studies with the VA and with the DOD for plant-based medicine, right? Psilocybin, MDMA and all these things. It's happening right now. Like the VA is leading the charge on this. Um, so those things are happening. SGB, actually the army did lead the way with that. Um, it was being used at special mission units for years. Fort Bragg does the most procedures for stellate ganglion nerve blocks in the entire United States. Um, and they were getting- Yeah, Dr. Lynch and Dr. Mulvaney are trying to push it through really right. hard right now. Yeah. They have their clinic up as in Maryland, I think. Yeah. Um, yeah, the Stella, uh, Stella Center. No, the Stella Stella Center. Stella Institute. Stella Institute, yeah. Stella Center's Dr. Eugene Lipoff. Um, But yeah, they, people are going there because it's working for them, right? Not a silver bullet. The intent of a SGB for the nerve block is to buy you some time to get you in and start processing all those traumas. So you can get in and start doing cognitive behavioral therapy or doing some of the other assisted therapies to work through those issues. But you don't know what most of us don't know what normal look like, right? We don't even have a reference point because we've been smashed for so long that we feel like 10% better and be like, oh my God, that's life changing, right? But you don't know what it feels like to be 70% better. And then you get there and you're like, how do I live like that, right? So, but all you need is some type of contrast. Those procedures give that reprieve, that reflection of, holy crap, this is what somewhat normal is supposed to feel like compared to where I was. Once you can see that, it's, oh God, I need to do more. Those procedures do an incredible job at that, right? It's a delay. It doesn't change your personality, do anything. But instead of I want to snap that person's neck or the road rage or snap on my kid or something, hey, that's probably not what I should be doing. I'm still pissed off, but I'm not going to let all that verbal diarrhea get out of my mouth that I can never reel back. And that damage is done. And that's where we were. When you're in survival mode, think of the beaten dog. When you go to pet it, it snaps at you. It wants you out of the picture, the threat to be away. 
So that's what we did when we were in survival mode. If we felt threatened, anything in our environment, we snapped at people or punched them in the face, right? Fuck around, find out. Like that's survival mode. When people get to that point, you don't have to ask them what's wrong. You'd be like, that person's in survival mode. I, we need to get them help. And if you put someone in what we did for 20 years or in law enforcement that long, do you think they're going to be in survival mode? Absolutely. It's, an ex- it's an expected appropriate response, right? If I throw you in a fire, you're going to get burned. You're not going to be like, as a doctor, I'm not going to be like, did you get burned? Tell me about your fire. I'm going to be like, hey, dude, how bad did you get burned? Let's look. It's the same thing with our environment, whether it's policemen, firemen, or military. That environment we go in, that high allostatic load, is the fire. And if we understand how that fire affects us, we can start doing stuff for people to get them to understand what has happened to them and how to get them out of that bad place to get them back to living, not surviving. And, and that's, you know, some of us might never thrive again like we used to, right? Just because of the wear and tear, it's not the age, it's the mileage, but we can improve our quality of life from where we are right now. We might not be that 21 year old kid, you know, smiling every day and living life to the fullest, but we can still live our life and enjoy it and, you know, have a little bit of dysfunction. It's expectation management. We can't fully repair people back to where they were at 21 years old. We're not there yet, right? but we can increase their longevity a little bit or their satisfaction with their life, their happiness or their performance, even 10, 20, 30 to 50%, that's still not backsliding. You're not moving back and degrading in survival mode. And that's what people need hope. And once you can give them that and show them just a little bit of improvement, that's usually enough for people in our community to go, okay, I'm goal oriented. I wanna be further. I wanna, anything worth doing is worth overdoing, right? So we want to take it to that next level as high as we can. That's just who we are. And so you just got to get them that little bit of reprieve just to see that, hey, I can get better. This can, I do have a way to recover from this. That's the hope they need to keep them grounded on this earth. That's what all those, whether it's psychedelics, plant-based medicine, SGB, hyperbaric oxygen therapy, whatever it is, that's why I say there's no silver bullet. Whatever it is that can show that little bit of improvement to give that person hope, and then get them into the right framework of, hey, what's time? it's time to transform you, not change you. You need to take ownership of health and action and actually understand that everything you're putting in your body is either fighting your health or it's creating your health, right? It's either fighting disease or fueling it. It's either fighting inflammation or fueling inflammation. If you can understand food as information and programming of what's going on in your body or what you expose yourself, whether it's toxins in the environment or relationships you're in or a job you're in, how it's affecting you, then you can't protect yourself from that environment. It goes back to basics. I could have saved all this time. Composite risk management, identify hazards, assess them, develop them, implement controls, make risk decisions, continually assess. It's a continual process, right? But if you never understand your environment, one, the first soft imperative, understand the operational environment, right? If you don't understand the environment, it's an effects and how it affects you and your ability to operate, you're not protecting yourself. You're going in blind. And that's one of the biggest tools I use with teaching all this stuff is risk management and mission analysis, intelligence preparation, the battlefield. Like if you understand those two things as a soldier, apply it to health and wellness, you get the same results. Preventative, proactive, and it, it's there for force protection to keep you alive. Well, and the hyperbaric that you talked about, I had never heard about that until your friend Johnny came on the show and was talking about it. And he's a huge advocate of it. So it, it goes to show these guys from all around this world 
small or as big as you want to say it, like you said, no silver bullet, but there are different things. And I talk to guys every single week and each person is different on, this is what helped me. This is what made me go the next step. And everyone though is pretty much on that same thing that it doesn't cure all. Even when we talked about Dr. Lynch and all those guys, they say this isn't a cure all. This just gets you going towards what will be the cure all in the end. I said, you're exactly right. And that's how I view all those things. You got to do whatever it takes to get that person where they need to be. Every patient we see in our program, it's a lot of, they have a lot of the same operator syndrome type stuff, but there's also a lot of stark differences, whether it's infectious disease, toxic exposures or childhood trauma, they're all different. It's like a cake, right? The recipe is going to be different. All these people, that's why you have to look at all of those things. You can't get target fixated on one thing, whether it's toxic exposures or trauma or whatever it is. It's all of those things together. So let's do for the final thing. Let's encompass everything with task force dagger and say what you're doing with that, how people can help and uh, what you're uh, looking to do, because there's a lot of ways to give to this organization, but let's talk about what they do, the immediate needs, the joint recovery team, the health initiative, and then how people can help this organization continue to do good work. So I'll go off the whole mission purpose and focus, right? So all three of our programs go back into having a mission, having a purpose and having a focus. So immediate needs, we talked about people getting ripped out of the team environment, wounded, ill or injured, something happens to them, they get pulled out of that environment, they need help. Whether it's getting family members to launch tool to say bye to their loved ones or get them home or you know, special prosthetics or ramps for wheelchairs getting in their houses or getting them to chemotherapy treatments and we have to pay we give them meal cards and fuel cards and everything to get up and out, right? Because the gaps in TRICARE and insurance. That's our immediate needs. It's like the 911 button of, hey, these systems aren't covering this. We're going to fill that gap. So that's first program. Second program is the recreational adaptive events. Uh, and that's getting people back out into the environment. Most importantly, with the people that they miss being with when they get wounded or injured. Right. And not only that, integrating the family into that as well. So it's really important. This is I'm going to go back to this again. Why the family component is so important. If you ask your kids, your wife to write your resume, do you think they could do it? Is a you know, did they think no responsible right. for X, Y and Z did X, Y and Z and all those. <laughs> right. Right. They know dad army guy. Right. So your kids have one perception of who you are. You have a perception of who you are. Your wife has one. But you guys don't get to see all aspects of those when dad's away at war. What's the family do? Reintegration. So we do all these events together. They're not just going out learning how to scuba dive or, you know, doing all those things. It's really reintegration of the family to get dad back into an environment where he's surrounded by his network, right? His team environment, his lifestyle, and then getting the family to understand why those dynamics are so important, how, how important that is to dad. Most importantly, dad to see the family dynamics of how they changed when he was gone all that time, right? Like when the kid always goes to mom for every word of advice or anything, doesn't go to dad. You're just this guy that comes here, keeps the lights on, teaches me how to you know, shoot a gun once in a while, then leaves for eight months. Like you get to see all that in one event. And then you see the reintegration with the family where they start asking dad for the advice or they have that empathy with dad. Dad has the empathy with the family. They reconnect and bond. And they have complete understanding of what had happened to them over the last 20 years. So that's what we do with those events. It's not just about doing sports with your buddies, right? Their reintegration, they're all family-based. 
So the family goes with them when they do all these things. They don't sit back in the rear just like you did for 20 years while you were deployed, right? Think of all the organizations you know that only help operators and send them out to all these hunting and fishing trips, but they don't include the family, right? So you're literally taking dad away, just like he was when he was deployed, doing all these cool things, then don't address the family thing. And then you go back home and that family thing's not addressed, you're gonna revert back to right where you were. So I'll leave that, the recreational adaptive events on that note. Then the soft health initiatives program, that is giving people the operator manual. The education drives everything. Education drives everything we do. If you don't understand your operational environment, you're not gonna understand how that affects you. So what we do is give people the education, we empower them, we inspire them, we educate them, and then we transform them. They take ownership of their health and their wellness. They take ownership of their family environment. They optimize that, we give them the tools and guide them. We put them to the programs that help them every step of the way do those things to come up with solutions, not management of disease. So resolution, health resolution, wellness resolution. So we do that through all our different partner organizations, whether it's Cleveland Clinic, whether it's Dr. Gabrielle Lyon, Dr. David LeMay, whether it's the Mount Sinai for all the heavy metal exposures, whether it's the hyperbaric programs we have, stem cell programs, Stella Center, Stella Ganglion, Nerve Blocks, Ketamine Infusions. We're partnered with different organizations that do the plant-based medicine. It's not our wheelhouse. We send people, if they want to do that, to those organizations that do it, right? But we have everything from trauma and resilience with Dr. Kerry Elk. Uh, we're going to be partnering with All Secure Foundation with Jen and Tom Satterley. Like, we're building the coalition. It's a, it's a, think of a fusion cell, right? Like, you have all these enablers. Like, you're calling air in the stack, close air support. We have all the organizations and institutions that are the best of the best at doing these things. They're vetted. We put so many people through them and it's changed lives. We open that network to everybody, not just soft. So if you're not a soft person, you're a first responder or something, we get you to those organizations that take care of you. We're not just, hey, you're not an operator, screw you, or you're a support person. That's another thing with Task Force Dagger. We, we, we help family members and enablers and their family members and every other branch in SOF and all the other sub support units in SOF and other agencies supporting SOF and foreign entities that support SOF that get wounded ill or injured with us. That's a huge scope, that's a huge mission, right? So mission, purpose, and focus, That remember we talked about that hope, what keeps you grounded to this earth? That's what we provide as an organization, hope. Get you back, getting clear mission, purpose, and focus, whether it's finding a new job or it's fixing your family or staying in the military and doing what you love doing, we're gonna help you at every step of the way to whatever your mission, purpose, and focus is. We help guide you there, we're not doing it for you. We're empowering you to do it yourself. That's uh, that's amazing, especially hearing that you guys are going to be teaming up with All Secure and Tom, and you got Chris Van Zant that's helping him out too. And I mean, those guys have a story if you haven't heard it that you really need to hear, because just like you, they can speak from experience and tell you this is the real deal. This is what happened. So it's amazing to hear that all these organizations are coming together because I think just like you said about the medicine. There's not one silver bullet for figuring out how to help the family, how to help the individual. And when you bring them all together, there's so many different routes that people can go down. And I think it's giving a lot of people hope that maybe at one point thought that there was no hope, but that there was no way to go back from where they were. So let's talk about where people can find you, where they can hear more of your story and how they can help out with Task Force Dagger. 
So LinkedIn or off the, you can find my Jeff Darty on LinkedIn, or you can go to taskforcedagger.org, look at Soft Health Initiatives Program. About there's a video in there explains you know how I got where I am and how I started the program for the foundation, how the foundation helped me, and that was my way of giving back. Um, you can find me on the Soft Health Awareness page on Facebook or on Instagram, Soft underscore Health underscore Initiative. Um, and I got all that information up there, but you can Google my name, look at all the articles I've done prior podcasts. Obviously that's where you got a lot of information. So Google is a good way to learn about what I'm doing and where I'm doing it at. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's the way that, that you find out, you know, you got to go around to everywhere that you've spoken before, because I think even listening to where you've spoken before, there has been an evolution of what you were speaking about, where you started out and to where you're speaking now and how the organizations have grown. Uh, it's really great to hear that kind of stuff. So, uh, guys, that's where you can find all of that. Of course, it'll be on the website. You'll be able to hit on all his links, be able to find him, be able to help out with Task Force uh, Dagger. Like I said, there's a ton of ways to help. And when I looked at that, there was uh, some amazing stuff. The wills, the trust, the stocks, estates giving, all that kind of stuff that was associated with Task Force Dagger. So the last question to you, what are you doing now and what's next for you? So what I'm doing now is I'm the senior leader for the human performance programs for the Special Forces Regiment, CA SIOPS 528. What I do when I retire, I'm going to continue the same thing, right? I'm finishing my health coaching here in March. I'm going to knock out my two degrees. I got nine classes for both my degrees and then start setting up for running the program full-time brick and mortar facility outside that works with health insurance or without health insurance by, with, or through to provide the best type of care to our community, not what's available until the military gets caught up and the VA gets caught up. My goal is to work myself out of a job. I don't want people depending on me for their health and wellness. So work myself out of a job, have the problem fix itself and uh, go on to back to mountain biking, surfing and skiing and family. <laughs> well, Jeff, you have an amazing career. You have an amazing story. And I'm so glad that you came on here. I'm honored that you came on here and told your story. Guys, that's going to be it for this week. You know, if you want more of me, you can always find me on Instagram at the DTD underscore podcast. You can find me on Facebook at the DTD podcast. You can find me on YouTube where all these conversations are in video form at the DTD podcast. Don't forget, though. Go to dtdpodcast.net. That's your one-stop shop. That's where you're going to be able to find this episode page of Jeff. It's going to have his pictures. It's going to have his links. It's going to have his bio. Everything you need to get a hold of him or to find out more about his story will be on there. So don't forget to go by there, dtdpodcast.net. Also, don't forget, go buy our sponsor, Police Coffee at policecoffee.com. They're an officer-owned business. They're dedicated to crafting the finest coffees and blends, and they're shipped as soon as they're made to provide you with the freshest coffee available. Their batch is roasted fresh by people who knows what it means to stay vigilant. And their specialty coffees, including pumpkin spice, because it's fall right now and everybody loves pumpkin spice. They don't waste one drop when flavor is concerned. Their coffee some of the best you'll find, and it also serves an important cause. They give back to our community. 50% of their profits go towards helping family members of police officers who fell in the line of duty. So don't forget to go by policecoffee.com, order what you need from them, and use DJK10, and that will give you 10% off your order. 
Like I said, guys, that's going to be it for this week. Make sure you go check out Jeff. Make sure you check out Task Force Dagger and see everything that they're doing to help out people get back to where they know they need to be. That's Jeff. I'm DJ. This has been the show. We'll catch you guys on the next one. See you later.